The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. everybody and welcome back to critically acclaimed the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide my name is william bibiani i am a critic everybody calls me bibs uh my name is whitney seibold i too am a critic and people call me whitney seibold they also, yeah. they also called me Old Grump and yeah. Luddite and How Dare You. They call me How Dare You a lot. Well, just don't ask Whitney's opinion on any trailers. How about that? <laughs> I don't watch those trailers anymore. No, I was actually, uh, 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 I found everyone was getting really excited about the various DC trailers for things like the Snyder Cut and, and there's, there's the all, Suicide Squad and the Batman. and this big uh, marketing blitz recently, the yeah. DC fandom. Which, which is fine. They're, mm. you know, by all means, market your movies. But everyone was getting super excited about him and just like you know this is gonna be my batman and i'm like i don't know until i see that like, <laughs> yeah, i uh, i understand like wanting to get excited about things but i i i know that they're just trying to sell us something i know mm-hmm. they're jumping the best possible light and i know that there's a decent chance that they might not turn out well so i'm gonna wait and see i'm not part of the trailer hype anymore like i don't want to yeah, i don't want just i don't think it should be our job to spread that hype it's one thing if you are hyped, but I don't think critics should be spending their time talking mm. about how awesome something might be in the future because it is not our job to set expectations. Mm. It is our job to talk about what we actually get. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew you when you were part of the hype machine. So I, it's, I it's had actually, to be. I was editing a website yeah, that covered a lot of it, that it, stuff. It's and wonderful to watch you evolve. William. It's not but, about uh, evolving. It's about meeting the expectations yeah. of my job. And I never particularly liked that part of my job. There was mm. a time when I was more into it than I am now. But And of course, trailers are an art form in and of themselves. I have nothing against trailers yeah. as their own kind of thing but i think you know like you don't ask like i don't know you don't ask a plumber to review a drano commercial like it's just we <laughs> well, not, that's a bad that's a bad analogy but you kind of see what i'm getting at right like it's well, the art of selling a movie and the art of making a movie there's overlap but it's not the same thing we're critics we review we have to view the film first and no. uh in fact uh one of the primary functions of critics is to cut through all of that noise that the the hype machines have put out there yeah uh to slice through all of the expectations and all of the hype and view the film essentially unto itself and see what it actually achieved as a work of art and that doesn't mean that we don't care about the movies or that we don't want all of the movies you had a, of a great uh, of saying which is mm. the time to get excited about a movie is after you've seen it yeah yeah and, like and, and yeah of once, course trailers might make you want to see it but you won't know if this is your movie you won't know if you want to get a tattoo of this thing until you actually yeah. see the film and we're just gonna wait for that I, I remember a lot of people started like pre-ordering and wearing uh clothing with porgs on it uh, oh, yeah. before the last jedi was released mm-hmm. they just like the design of the little they're critter. cute they're cute. They're yeah, not they're gonna, fine. They're not, unless like there was a big shocking twist and where it turned out mm. they were like 
grotesque Cronenberg monsters. I, <laughs> I think it's probably a safe bet yeah. to say that I wouldn't mind owning like a plush porg. Like yeah, that's I, not so bad. I, I did like that the Sasquatch ate the porgs. <laughs> Sa- and they Sa- felt guilty about it too. That was a great yeah. scene. A Sasquatch eats Furbies. That's a good Star Wars movie. Yeah, I like that Star Wars. Uh, movie. But uh, but I I in, fandom exists in this weird place right now though where somebody can like. Have like a porg outfit, like a porg suit, a porg tuxedo, <laughs> or a porg gown. Okay, I would totally and, wear a uh, porg tuxedo. Though. I probably like, would too. Yeah, that's pretty it's awesome. Like, actually, I, I, I like that movie not to the extent of like wanting a porg tuxedo, but I'd wear a porg tuxedo. Yeah, if someone got you that for your birthday, you would totally. Wear I, that. I would wear yeah, the porg tuxedo. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like like the the collectibles are in a world kind of separate from the film. Like a lot of people really like uh, the design of the characters from David Ayer's Suicide Squad, even though the film isn't held in high regard. That's true, because the characters, I think, mm. well, some of them anyway, are are far more interesting than the film we got. Well, I, so. I think just the, the costume design and uh, mm. sort of the, the way they photograph and the way they simply look goes a long way to how much affection the people have for the, the well, for them as characters. It's part of it. I mean, yeah. it, it certainly uh, adds a lot to the fun, especially if you're part of like the convention cosplay. Exactly. Like, exactly. That, that can so, be a major factor. So but you can hate the movie. The movie can be a big bomb, but you can still dress in that costume well, to a convention. Like there are lots the, of characters the, the, the I like from movies. Catwoman, that Catwoman, yeah. for instance, that costume will still show up at, at uh, conventions and stuff. Yeah. Nobody likes that movie. It's not a particularly good film. No. I, I, have, I have yet to run into somebody who has like genuine... Like non, like without a hint of irony, it has camp value. For, there's, it there's, does have camp it, value. It's actually but, yeah. not, not. It's actually kind of fun to watch, but mm. it's not firing on its. Own. Yeah. It's not working on its own terms. You actually brought up a point, and we'll talk about all the movies we're running, mm. reviewing in a minute. But while we're on this tangent, you're talking about how the collectible market is its own thing. What was the last collectible you bought? You actually Ooh. liked the movie enough that you went out of your mm. way to get. An action figure or a uh, t-shirt or what was the last one? You know one? what? I, I requested this as a birthday gift, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my wife asked me, is, is there like a, something I can get for you? And I requested a t-shirt I had been eyeballing. It's the Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> from uh, from man from the yeah. movie Mandy, I You've really love I really love Mandy, and so uh, you've been wearing that shirt a lot. There, there's a scene in Mandy where uh, after like some really hor- horrend- horrendous things have happened to the two main characters, and uh, Nicholas Cage is uh, is it alone in a house? He's just sort of bloodied and wearing uh, a t-shirt and briefs. Mm. He's just completely traumatized by what's happened, and the television starts blaring him a commercial for this macaroni product called Cheddar Goblin, <laughs> and the commercial is the most absurd thing. And this little green monster appears on screen and vomits macaroni and cheese onto the heads of children. And it's this completely off-putting, completely surreal moment in a movie that's already been surreal up to that point and is only going to get more surreal from there. It's so beautiful. It's like <laughs> that, that Cheddar Goblin thing is just so wonderful. So somebody had the wherewithal to make a Cheddar Goblin t-shirt. So I got a Cheddar Goblin t-shirt. I got a, uh, uh, the last t-shirt I got was a t-shirt for the Monster Squad. Okay. Uh, but um, the last like collectible collectible mm. I bought like was the, was the last time I was at Comic-Con. This was years ago now, but like mm. uh, it, there was in a Comic-Con exclusive and I said, I'm not going to go out of my way on this, but somehow I don't think this one will immediately sell out. And I was right. Although I did get, they numbered them like one of the last numbers. It was a, <laughs> it was a mini bust 
of Porkins from Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, <laughs> and I have that mini bust. He only has like two, two lines, but they and, and then he dies horribly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and the thing is, is that he's a character who gets no respect. He like he's there to be fat, mm. be named Porkins, and die. And if uh, the character's always stood out for me because I felt really, really bad, not just for the character, but how it was portrayed. So I'm like, I'm going to buy this fucking bust and I'm going to support <laughs> fucking Porkins, like the one Star Wars character <laughs> nobody cares about. Unfortunately, the royalties don't go to Porkins. They should it just go, go to Porkins. It just goes into the gigantic Star Whatever. Wars Whatever. It was the last time I like went out of my way to get something that was like kind of expensive. Mm. Like it wasn't like cheap. Um, like I actually like... I don't know, do, do you like... Blu-ray box sets count as no, a collectible? No, because then you're buying the film. That's not a collectible. That's okay. like if it's collectible, it would be like if you got the Planet of the Apes head. Okay, like I, I think that's a collectible. But I, if you just bought get, a Blu-ray box set, it's different. I, I got that Ingmar Bergman box set though. It's like 39 films. But that's owning the art. That's yeah, not yeah, owning the ancillary so. fun stuff. Like if you if you bought like an Ingmar Bergman action figure, that would count. Uh, as soon as somebody puts out an Ingmar Bergman action figure, I'll buy it. If anyone can find an Ingmar Bergman action figure online, please tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Uh, we would love to acquire this for Whitney Seibold. Maybe we could do like a, a web series that's just Ingmar Bergman in action. <laughs> here's a here's a Werner Herzog uh, action figure with shoe eating action. Anyway, that'd, be, that'd uh, be great. Anyway, to talk about the movies we're actually reviewing this week because we won't get to see the Batman for. At least a year or two at this point. Oh, it's, uh, ne- oh, it's never coming out. It's not a real movie. <laughs> None of these are real movies. We're not going to see these things. We're going to be reviewing the new releases The One and Only Ivan, Chemical Hearts, Words on Bathroom Walls, The Pale Door, Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm very excited to talk to you about and Tesla and on the critically acclaimed streaming club where we are catching up on movies. One or both of us haven't seen yet, even though we should have, and they're allegedly classics. Uh, we are going to be reviewing uh, the horror classic, the Stepford wives, which I was familiar with through cultural osmosis, but had never actually sat down and watched before. And uh, it was a real fun, well, fun might not be the best word, but a real good experience. Like, yeah. It was a really yeah. excellent film. St- Stepford Wives is a good one, we'll and, get, and we'll get to it. Yeah, and I think everyone sort of takes for granted the the concept without ever necessarily interrogating the original film, and it's going to be a, a real treat to talk about it. Mm. So, uh, But let's get right going. Let's get started. And you tell me about, it, it's hard to say in the well, digital age, like what the biggest release what, of the weekend. The, is the biggest week, release yeah. of the weekend was Tenet, obviously, but it didn't open in America. And we didn't get a chance to see it. So, no, and they're know, not. Gonna, no... and, they're, and they're definitely not going to give us online screeners for it. And mm. we don't want to encourage people to go to movie theaters right now because it's legitimately, in our estimation, mm. irresponsible to do so. You, you other people out, uh... may vary. Other people's opinions may vary about that, but we're not going to step up and say that you should go into a single room location with a whole bunch of people who may or may not keep their masks on. No matter how be, good that movie, who is, will then be yeah. breathing, laughing into a room with circulated air. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's responsible to encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. will not be reviewing that until we get an opportunity to review it safely. Uh, Drew McQueenie, uh, as you pointed out on Twitter, said he's going to watch all of Christopher Nolan's films on his phone from now on. Yeah. Just to kind of spite him as a well, filmmaker. Again, Nolan was the one who was like, this movie must be released in theaters. And you know what? That's fine. But why must it be released right now before we're sure it's safe? Like, yeah. that's what I, I understand releasing like some smaller movies into drive ins. You know, like uh, that new Russell Crowe Road Rage movie oh, or whatever. it's called. Which is yeah. like, fine, release that one and like release some of the smaller stuff into drive-ins. You weren't expecting to make hundreds of millions of dollars on it anyway. Um, and, you know, you'll you'll get some extra attention from it. And that's fine. Knock yourself out. I'm glad we have drive-ins. Mm-hmm. But Tenet needs to make money. 
And I appreciate that people want to see Tenet on the big screen. Wait. <laughs> like It'll be just as good if you see it in a year. I, I know you know, that we're impatient to see big movies. Like, again, I know it happened like just before blockbuster season and people were really excited to see mm. the blockbusters that were coming out. Uh, I'm sorry. We just, we just don't get them yet. We just, we just don't waiting. want yeah. people to die. So we're just going to have to chill out. There's a ton of stuff to watch. Mm. And as a result, we're going to start with the new film on Disney+. Plus. Uh, which, by the way, Whitney saw the majority of the films this week. I only saw a couple. But uh, let's start with Whitney's review of the one and only Ivan. Ivan. The one and only Ivan yeah. uh, is based on a true story huh. of a gorilla named Ivan. Neat. Uh, so like Coco the gorilla? Or like Born in Captivity, that kind of thing? Or? No, uh, kidnapped from Africa oh. and... Uh, and brought to work in a circus in America, ended up uh, after some very, you know, because circuses were already at the point kind of a dead art, and they kind of are still, yeah. <laughs> but ended up uh, headlining a really kind of little rinky-dink animal act in a mall in Tacoma, Washington. And Ivan was the headliner. The, uh, the ringmaster, played by Brian Cranston. Okay. Uh, what, you know, brought out a bunch of animals, had a, a performing chicken that could uh, hit baseballs with a little automated bat, had a bunny that could drive a car, had an elephant that would just sort of walk around, and then the headliner was a silverback gorilla and would just sort of roar and be very vicious, and everyone would ooh and ah, and he'd make 20 bucks that night. Okay. Um, Brian Cranston in bad kid films might be my favorite actor. Uh, <laughs> Because when he's in drama, he's a very good actor. He's very talented. He's, he's very nuanced, talented. very textured. He's incredibly funny, uh, mm. which I think he does. Well, I guess he does get credit for because he's in a sitcom. Uh, he's just incredibly versatile. And he was a hardworking mm. bit player for like two decades before anyone like knew he wasn't like mm. Malcolm in the Middle. Like you, mm. my, we've been watching like compilations of like old eighties and nineties commercials. Okay. Like, like just for fun, just to put something on in the background. <laughs> and we saw like there was like an ad for like JC Penny starring Brian Cranston. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before he was Brian Cranston, he was just some commercial guy. He was like, Oh, I don't know, I recognize that dude. He's making a living, that yeah. guy. Uh yeah, now he's in a uh relatively well budgeted Disney film with a lot of really impressive special effects. The animals are all digital. There's no okay. animal actors in this, and the special effects are first rate. Wow. Uh, this is Disney money. So. Brian Cranston did additional voices on the American dub of Legend of the Drunken Master. No kidding. So, like, if you're watching like the big fight scene mm. in Legend of the Drunken Master, where Jackie Chan's getting super drunk and beating up a whole bunch of guys, and you're hearing like people going ah ooh or like ooing and aahing in the background, Brian Cranston's probably one of those. What? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's real weird. weird. It's got a good voice. He was. That's uh, yeah, great. It's funny. Uh, he he and uh, and Elizabeth Banks were two the two best things about that crappy Power Rangers movie. Oh, like, I like that movie. They I, are the best parts of it, but I, I, I like know, that I, movie. I, I appreciate that the filmmakers tried to turn it into, like, an earnest teen drama, but it still had, like, zords and I, I like I like the juxtaposition of earnest teen drama and silliness. I like that they managed to... I thought I think, they did an okay job of having their cake and eating uh, it. I, I suppose so. I think the silliness was just way too silly in that movie. But yeah, he was a giant floating head that just appeared and gave them instructions and exposition. He was a monster at the beginning who, like, nearly died. Uh, he was a yeah. monster. He was a Power Ranger. He was a hero. Yeah, but he was like a creature. He was an alien. That doesn't make him a monster. Potato, potato. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't 
but, uh, I think I agree with that. But here, here he's playing this very theatrical ringmaster where he gets to do a fake accent when he's on stage and he's ta- speaking very earnestly to the animals backstage. And you know he's just acting against a tennis ball because they had mm. to do CGI animals later. Uh, and he is completely selling it. He is 100% there. He is air-butting the heck out of this thing. <laughs> Which, if you, if you think of Air Bud as a joke movie... Airbud's actually quite good. It's it's the it's, first Airbud. It's a very frank film when you watch yeah, it. It's, it's actually, like really it, beautifully photographed. It works. And it's a good emotional journey. It sounds like it shouldn't and, work. A dog that plays basketball. Mm-hmm. No, it. The first one's good. <laughs> like legit good. I mean, the the idea is absurd, and I I, I think when the film I, doesn't fully acknowledge how absurd the idea when is. When I say but, good, is it's as good as that movie can probably exactly, get. Exactly. It's a four and star, three star movie, it, and it does have the single best line of dialogue in all of cinema history, which yeah. is of course. There, a rule that says a dog can't play there, basketball. There ain't no rule says a dog can't play basketball. Yep. That's, that's my fantasy. I wanted to walk. I've had so many Schmodown entrances planned around being that guy. Because I wanted like a dog to come in and like, a dog can't play for bibs. Oh, there's no rule that says a dog can't play. <laughs> One of these days I'm going to do it. Uh, but yeah, uh, the story is uh, Ivan is the headliner. He... Uh, who, who plays the voice of when the animals are together? They oh, they, talk. they speak English. Oh. Yeah, they speak like English Josh to one another. Or something. Um, who plays Ivan? Sam Rockwell plays Ivan. Oh, and Sam okay. Rockwell. Sam Rockwell is also. I, I think he's a very great actor. He's a great um, actor. And he has this wonderfully casual line delivery. It's like uh, a dog played by Danny DeVito says, "Hey, can I sleep in your cage?" He's like, "He's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no, no sweat, dude." And the way they animate his face is really great. Um, Helen Mirren plays a poodle. Angelina Jolie plays an old elephant. Uh, Mike White plays a seal. Mike White wrote this thing. Yep. Mike White, uh, uh, who also wrote uh, School of Rock and a mm. number of other uh, mostly well-received movies. Orange County, Chuck and Buck. He's, he's yeah. done a lot. Um, yeah. He this, created yeah. the TV show Pasadena, which we reviewed on Castle Too Soon last year. Right. And actually holds up pretty good. Uh, he's a very varied career, Mike White. Um the story is Ivan is uh, uh, kind of sad because this circus is failing. So the big uh, Trump card that they have for the circus is we're going to get a baby elephant and it's really cute and cute animals are going to bring in the crowds. Ivan begins talking to the baby elephant. The baby elephant doesn't quite understand that it's in captivity when some of the animals die in captivity. And Ivan says, we're going to break out. The big story is how are they going to break out? Where are they going to go? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're wild animals. They don't know where to go in. Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, it's not there's really no place for, the, for yeah, them. There's yeah. no real place for them to go. And uh, yeah. it, I'd say wacky hijinks ensue, but nothing really ensues. It doesn't rise to the level of wacky hijinks. It's more like laid back hijinks. Well, I mean, there's there's two kinds of like that mm-hmm. kind of animal movie. There's like Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, where mm-hmm. it's actually really earnest and pretty like uh, uh, fairly presented. Mm-hmm. And then there's Dunstan furry, checks in. Yeah, yeah. furry vengeance where there's a lot of farting yeah, and the evil people getting their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. And like, then finally someone is like, if this ape can grow leaves out of his mm-hmm. legs, then we can make pencils it's, out of leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The odd life of Timothy green. Yeah. That's a very strange film. Uh, this one doesn't even rise to the level of edge held by films like Sammy the Way Out Seal <laughs> and The Monkey's Uncle from the 60s. You know, these, th- this is such a, 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 a shapeless, bland, offense-free mass of good feelings that you don't want to touch it. It's like <laughs> a little too gooey. <laughs> 
Like there's not a, a whole lot of drama. And when we finally like see a flashback to Ivan's childhood, it's like, oh God, what a, had a kind of a traumatic childhood for a CGI gorilla in a Disney film. Yeah. Uh, like that's as far as we're going to get in terms of trying to really grab us by this, this animal's drama as it's, it turned. And, uh, yeah. And we get that kind of montage at the end where we get to see pictures of the actual gorilla. Oh. It's a CGI gorilla. It just, they look the same. Uh, no. But uh, the, the whole arc was, yeah, they, they did find this gorilla in Africa in the 1960s. It lived in circuses its whole life and it was eventually released into captivity. Uh, but like a, a animal preserve. Like a wildlife yeah, preserve. Yeah, like a wildlife yeah, preserve. Yeah, yeah. It was like outdoors for the first time in like decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while in captivity, uh, Ivan learned to paint, huh. like learned to draw a little bit and like actually paint things from uh, from his memory. Oh, interesting. so that was kind of interesting. That's interesting. OK, it's, that's a subplot. Of that's the not the framing device. That's, no, that's your framing device. The, the, that's an amazing framing device. <laughs> and you yeah, look at the story. Behind there's there's the the, like little stories of like how, how, how Ivan's like just sort of sketching with a crayon here or there and just like tossing no. papers aside. That's a key. I drew a thing and mm. the animals are like, wow, that's a thing. You should do art. And there's a little human girl who is the voice of the animals. She has about as much personality as the kids from that Dumbo film. That is to say, none whatsoever. Yeah. Who says, look, Ivan can draw. Okay, and Ivan paints a picture. Is is Brian Cranston the villain because he runs that zoo? Or... There's no villain. But okay, the anta- is he the antagonist? Is he trying to keep Ivan down? Like I, I suppose so. He's the one who's trying to keep the circus alive. Uh-huh. But he's doing it by very earnest means and he's very open about what he's doing to keep the circus alive. He's not cruel. He doesn't yell at okay. the animals. Uh, the worst uh, thing he does is he hires somebody who's kind of a bumbling assistant who's not very good with the animals, but there's no meanness or cruelty or villainy whatsoever, which means there's no rooting interest for anything in this movie. I want to schedule this as a double feature, the one and only Ivan Mm. with uh, the horror film Terror Tract. Have you ever seen Terror Tract? (laughs) No, what is Terror Tract? Terror Tract is... Is it a killer gorilla movie? Well, no, sort of. Okay, so it's a 2000 horror anthology movie uh, starring John Ritter. And the idea is John Ritter is a real estate agent who is showing couples around all these houses in suburbia. And as you may know, like if anything bad happened in this house, the real estate agent is legally required to tell you what it was. Mm. And so they're just like, oh, what happened to the previous tenants? And every single time there's a horrifying story and he, <laughs> he's obligated to tell it and it just makes him not want to buy the house. And he's getting increasingly frustrated until it leads to the movie is not great. The ending of Terror Tract is amazing. <laughs> like it's totally worth it to get to it. The other thing that's totally worth it to get to it is that one of the segments in the middle is Brian Cranston versus a monkey. Brian Cranston plays a dad in suburbia. I'm plays, there. I'm he there. plays a dad in suburbia, and there's like a there's like a I think it's like a helper monkey, mm. you know, like in the monkey shines, and um, it like it escapes or whatever, and it like is running around suburbia, and it ends up in his house, and his daughter like completely falls in love mm. with this thing, but it drives him insane. And he, like, hires, like, a dog catcher to catch it, but then the monkey stabs the guy to death, and then it ends up killing Brian Cranston's wife, and then he's trying to kill the, oh, the monkey, and then the daughter kills Brian Cranston to save the monkey. And you're just oh, like, man. oh, my God. He's amazing in it. He loses his shit beautifully. 
If, if, oh gosh, if, if I were a hacker, yeah. I'd hack into the Disney Plus mainframe, <laughs> to rem- replace them. remove the one and only Ivan, and, and replace it with that film. It's amazing. Um, yeah, the rest of the movie's not that amazing, but that's a good bit in the middle. Um, all right, so the one and only Ivan, eh. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very Disney. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if you like that sort of thing, I know a lot of people do, if you like sort of bland innocuous animal entertainments then this is right for you i do not like bland innocuous animal entertainments i like a little bit of soul in my movies yeah. and this has l- almost none of that fair enough uh let's move on and here's a film i have seen this is a new release on amazon prime uh it is called chemical hearts which is not a good title can we agree on that does that just hmm. not sound appealing is that just me it sounds like a a, a biopic about a famous chemist yeah uh, I thought it was just gonna be like you know something like artificial heart thing or something yeah. like someone has an artificial heart and oh will they survive long enough to find love or something like that which would also be really trite uh, this is trite in totally different ways <laughs> uh, it is the new film uh, it's based on a book by Crystal Sutherland called Our Chemical Hearts I guess they removed Our for marketing reasons uh, and it is written and directed by Richard Tan, who previously did a romance movie I love oh, yeah. called Southside South, with, South you, with You, which we've talked about a few times recently. It's and it's about just, the, the young Obamas. Yeah, it's about the first date between Michelle Robinson and Barack mm-hmm. Obama, and it's really smart. It's really thoughtful, mm-hmm. um, and I, it's not like fawningly political either. It's just like about them when they were young and 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 what and the, that's what their po- their politics were. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really 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 good and I want to make that clear that I think that movie is fantastic while Chemical Hearts sucks a lot. Um, <laughs> Chemical Hearts is one of those movies uh, about a teen guy who thinks the most interesting thing about him is that nothing interesting has happened to him yet. He's like, oh, teen years are where everything is like super powerful and emotional, and I just haven't had my story. Fortunately, he's going to meet a, a, a woman, a, a young a young woman in high school. He's going to meet a project, is he's, what he's going to meet. He's going to meet a woman who has <laughs> a lot of baggage, and to be fair, her baggage, I think, is treated very, very fairly, uh, but... Why we're seeing it through his lens is never explained. We we meet this young woman, and she is, uh, she had, without going into too much detail, because a lot of her backstory is revealed over the course of the film, uh, she was in a very serious car accident. She's walking with a cane. She had a lot of physical therapy for about a year. Mm. Uh, someone died in the car accident, and the exact specificities of what the, of who that was and why mm. are... I'll, I'll leave it to discover yourself in case you want to watch it. But but her boyfriend is a ghost now. <laughs> she. Uh, oh, no, wait. Now, I, I, that, it, that was the movie Endless. That was the movie Endless, yeah. which was at the very least a little bit more entertaining than this. Um, and uh, she's going through a lot. She's going through a lot of guilt. She's going through a lot of internalized ableism. And here's this dude who just wants to stand near her and like siphon off everything interesting about her so she can be interesting. And all he's got to do is like be supportive and ask her to change for him and then that will be the great high school romance and every single time they're interacting i wanted to walk into the screen and push them apart (laughs) and just go look at him and go no she has a story you find your own story he treats her like a project in this movie i'm gonna get her bring her out of her shell yeah Uh, she's wearing flannel all the time i can fix that and uh, she's played by um, the actress from Hustlers. Uh, her name well, is uh, L- Lily Ryan Hart. Yeah. Uh, she was in Hustlers. Very good in Hustlers. She's also um, on uh, Riverdale, which is a very, very popular show. I've you might know her from Riverdale. that. 
Uh, she's blonde. I'm guessing she plays Betty. I think she does. Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> she does. She plays okay. Betty. She does. She plays Betty. Um, uh, but she, um, she's a, a little too charismatic a performer mm. to pull off the kind of brooding character that I think uh, the the script demands of her. I think she's misdirected. Well, she's not bad, but I think she's. Um, She's not playing subtle, especially against her co-star, mm-hmm. who is trying to coast on his kind of stoic charm rather than act. I am so sick and tired mm. of movies, especially teen movies, where the protagonist is the most boring person in the movie. Yeah. This is this is actually an interesting double feature with the movie Stargirl, which was a little better because they had a ukulele. But like <laughs> other than that, they're suspiciously similar <laughs> in a lot of ways. Like, but like at least the ukulele gave you an opportunity for some musical numbers. This <laughs> is just dreary and dull. Yeah, and like it's full of all the and it's full of all the similar beats. Like, oh, I'm gonna walk you home from school and shit, and I'm gonna stalk you online and shit. And, um, and you're, you're gonna, suspicious you're, for no good reason you're gonna go for that. And, you're and, gonna, you're, and we're gonna bond over Neruda poetry because of course Kids in high school love Neruda. Yeah, and and by the way, Pablo Neruda was a really fucked up person who wrote some really fucked up shit, including about people with disabilities. So the mm. fact that she's gravitating towards him is weird, considering how well read she is and how they're talking about all the stuff that she knows. She's one of those people well, who, like, is... every time she opens her mouth, she's got, like, a cool factoid or something. And it's like, this... you didn't really yeah. apply that to every aspect of her character. You only did it when you thought it would be fun for the scene. This and is she... a, a teen romance set in the present, yeah. written from the perspective of somebody who's very, very old. Uh, th- mm. There's there's not a lot of actual uh, youth and vigor in these characters. No. This is all... Uh, Especially the protagonist. Th- this is all yeah. adult views of youth put in the mouths of young people. So all of the... There's a lot of speeches throughout I, this movie about what it's like to be a teenager and what it really means and how everything's so intense when you're a teenager and... Sure, those things are true when you're older and you have some perspective on your teenage years. These characters are 17. They're played by 23-year-olds. They look and act like 23-year-olds. Yeah. And they talk like 60-year-olds. And yet, even though it is obviously you know made by older adults, because mm. you know older people tend to make movies, it, it, it doesn't have that youthful vitality. You're right about mm. that. But it also doesn't feel like it comes from a place of actual wisdom. The actual, no, like, no, it's, what, it's just this kind of myopic, simple platitudes. Yeah. It's basically like, oh, wow. It's like when we're in love, it's just chemical reactions in our brain. And I'm like, yeah, you're not blowing anyone's fucking mind. Like, <laughs> that's, a, that's how mm. brains work. Yeah. Like, I get that when you're young, it feels that way. But you have to present that in a way that actually mm. feels like a, some form of poetry as opposed to this is literally all I've got. I'm not very interesting. Mm. And it's one of those things where basically like she just takes him along to various places of interest and... He's going to have his mind blown like, I'm going to take you to this old water bottle processing plant where there's oh somehow God. a koi pond in the second floor. And I'm like, okay, first off, that you're waiting in that pond and that pond is not like filtered water. That's like, <laughs> and it's from like a plastics plant. Like that's, you're catching all kinds of fucking diseases skin, from that thing. Your skin is going to start drifting yeah, off your bones. Yeah, just sloughing off the bone. Like, and so like, it's full of just, I'm like, oh, like I'm going to take you to like, this grave and I'm just like cool there's a lot of red herrings and uh, not red herrings red flags in mm. this relationship and everyone should be just like backing the fuck away because neither of you are in a good place right now and ultimately this movie ends up feeling really just shallow and it's portrayal of 
attempted portrayal rather of deep subjects yeah. about yeah. first love, about mourning, about uh, uh, abusive parents at some point that becomes an issue. And like, it's all from the perspective of someone who has no perspective on that. Mm. And that infuriates yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's a boring dude. He's, he is. He's, he's not a very interesting character, and he's not played in a very interesting way. Now, um, I've seen some teen romances where the characters are kind of average, and they're wrestling with their demons. The Spectacular Now yeah. is one of them. The Spectacular Now is a really good movie. Yeah. It actually deals with teen romance in a, a very open and very honest sort of way. And there's Heck, a lot of The moral... fault in our stars yeah. is more honest than this, and that's a, a big Hollywood weepy kind of movie. It, it, the one I was actually thinking of was also based on a book from the mm. author of The Fault in Our Stars was Paper Towns, oh, yeah. where if you look at Paper Towns, a movie which for the first half hour I hated, yeah, because then, it seems to be celebrating a type of codependent relationship. Yeah, it's really like, gross. So it's about this, it's a similar thing, actually. It's about this completely milquetoast protagonist and this really cool, literally girl next door. And the, she goes, they go, she takes him out for like one night on the town where they see the sights and get revenge on her ex-boyfriend and stuff. And he forms this incredibly unhealthy fixation on her. And mm. then she disappears. And for like the next hour of the movie give or take it's him looking for her and all of his friends telling him like dude, she doesn't want to be found dude and like the movie starts winning me back because the supporting cast is so good but at the end of the movie when he finally finds her again it completely redeems itself like everything I hated about like this protagonist and everything like it seemed like this movie was flagrantly celebrating mm. about really trite teen romance cliches mm -hmm. and not not the ones that are there because they're good and they work but because people fixated on them because it saves you the trouble of writing real characters mm -hmm. the movie actually ended up having a point about that and i don't want to ruin it for you but i ultimately left it very satisfied even though i was initially infuriated yeah this doesn't have that this is ends up being just incredibly earnest about the fakest shit and every time yeah, something real yeah. happens it is completely diffused by not showing it from the perspective of the yeah. person who's actually feeling it genuinely and in, in fact in not highlighting uh first of all let's let's talk a little bit about representation uh, yeah. this is a teen romance where uh, one of the main characters is disabled yeah. uh great disabled representation but because we're focusing on the able-bodied character mm -hmm. uh, i feel like we're underserving her disability yeah which is which is to say when we see her walking with a cane but it doesn't seem like her disability has really altered her life in any kind of major way we don't see her struggling with it we, we do we, once. we we see her uh, this is a weird scene actually because what well, happens she, is she she used to be a sprinter and now she can't sprint anymore right. well, and that's like this one moment where she's sad she can't be a sprinter but like the even, everyday struggles of being disabled are not dramatized in this i, movie. I agree but i do want to highlight the scene because i think mm -hmm. there's more going on in it than you're giving credit for mm -hmm. and not in a good way um but uh one of his friends texts him mm -hmm. and says she's, what's she's at the track doing weird stuff yeah crazy the track. Track. you gotta check this out she's doing all this weird stuff and i'm like what is she drunk is she like acting out she like is she going through I, some I, shit i half expected her to be like naked in a pentagram summoning a demon you know something right like, something, something something really crazy something yeah. that might be like oh you and this something is weird to make the movie interesting so he like flees and like runs out to the high school and he sees her and she's running back and forth on the track trying to gain her mobility back basically mm. she's just doing her physical therapy and she's getting really frustrated about it which mm. is a thing and I'm like, okay, you're going to make this into, like, basically just doing her physical therapy or trying to gain her mobility back after she's only been, like, after the car car's only a year ago and she sells mm -hmm. a cane. Uh, you're going to make that, like, 
like a show like in like I don't think she would want you there for that. Mm. Like you're, it feels really invasive and wrong. Well, and, and they're turning it into like this, this, uh, mysterious quirk of her personality, no. like this way into her when this is a real struggle she's going. And through. the more you learn about her, the more you realize she's going through some actual mm. shit and he does not want to be there for well, it. He and, just wants yeah, her to be if, better, but he doesn't if, want to do any of the work and he doesn't want to connect with her about if it. If it were told, like, if that were the first half of the, if it were like Paper Towns, this yeah. was the half of the movie where she's trying to come back and she has this sort of, essentially an experimental romance mm-hmm. with this man at kind, a point where she's not quite ready for it like, yet. Like, it's not a rebound, but yeah. that's the closest thing, analogy I can think uh, yeah, of. Yeah, like, you know, like, like uh, let's see if I can try this right now, even though I know I'm kind of not emotionally ready for this yeah. and it kind of hurts. And then the second half is, you fast forward like four or five years and they mm-hmm reconnect and they kind of come to terms with the fact that the romance was something that they were both emotionally unprepared for. Yeah, that would be That would have put it into some perspective, wouldn't it? But it actually ends with them having this big kind of weepy uh, cathartic understanding as realized through the school newspaper and all these other quirky side characters that I wish the movie were also about. Yeah. There's a sweet moment between two lesbian characters where uh, they kind of admit to their love to one another at a party. It's like can I watch that movie instead about these two young lesbians who Mm -hmm. had an affair a long time ago and then they were really kind of awkward for a long time and then they reconnected after years? That sounds like a more interesting story to me. Like, here's... I'm just going to say this right now. It's generally good word of thumb, good good, uh, Mm. uh, rule of thumb, word of advice. Uh, When you're writing a story, that the protagonist be interesting. Yeah. Stop, Stop making the protagonist an... And, and every person or a cipher. Like, I don't want to project yeah. onto. If I, listen, I, I think a lot of people have enough of an ego that they want to project onto someone more interesting than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on top of that, I don't. Lo- I don't project myself in the movies very often. I look at protagonists as someone like, do I want to get to know them? Do I as a separate time? person? Do I want to spend at least ninety minutes of my life essentially living with this? person? Or talking to them or hearing yeah. their story at a bar? Like yeah. that's what I want. And I'm, I would spend like two minutes with this kid and go. Oh, you seem really, really nice. I have to go stand over in this corner, yeah. and I would just be gone. I would just—I would try to be polite about it. I was <laughs> me being snarky, but like, I would be like, oh, "That's great. You'll you'll figure out your shit someday, and come back, mm. and we'll have an actual conversation then." But right now, we have nothing to say to each other. Yeah, yeah. And I'm bored with you, and I had spent yeah. an hour and a half watching this really disappointing, mediocre romance with like some good cinematography in it and i think lily reinhardt definitely is better than this material in particular but like it this does not work and i'm kind of sick of talking about it (laughs) to be perfectly frank let's 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 was at least goofy Endless yeah, was at least endless, goofy. Endless had, could, like, dumb shit we could talk about. But yeah, Chemical this Hearts. Is, this is just enough. not how you do a teen romance. At least, not in my estimation. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, tell me about Words on Bathroom Walls. Okay, Words on Bathroom Walls. This is another, uh, well, it's staged as a teen romance. This one stars uh, Charlie Plummer as a young man in high school. Uh, and they reveal the information very uh very slowly but his day seems to be going like take take some weird turns like there's a a, a day when he's in uh a, just a, a regular class and some people appear in the classroom and start dragging people out into the hallway and beating them with baseball bats oh and you realize and, and nobody seems to be acknowledging this and you come to the conclusion very quickly that he's schizophrenic and oh. those aren't real people uh he's hallucinating these people and he begins to see like dark clouds invading uh uh, from what I understand about schizophrenia, this is uh, very much the way it works. There are uh, voices and presences 
uh, and you sort of these invasive feelings in your brain that just sort of show up from time to time and offer you uh, sucker or threat. They, you have no control over these things and they, Mm. they sort of, you know, you, you cannot drown them out. They're the controlling forces in your life. It feels like you're being controlled from the outside. Uh, this is sort of a Hollywood version of that. Oh. Uh, e- even a, l- a little bit more brazenly Hollywood than something like A Beautiful Mind, which is, however you feel about that movie, brazenly Hollywood. Oh, it's very... Uh, it's, yeah. it's very... I, I don't think it... It's rom- very polished. It's it, Yeah, it doesn't romanticize mental illness, but it is an incredibly polished version and, of it. And indeed, they, they smooth over mm. a lot of the less appealing parts of yeah. the protagonist's story. And, so. and I feel like this, this movie yeah. does something very similar, but it, it is about how this young man has to... Uh, sort of, he begins to have a, a, a romance with a young woman, uh, and he also has to sort of contend with the fact that these hallucinations, these voices, these things that he hears, are just sort of a a part of his life. And uh, he's been bouncing from school to school. His uh, it, 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 he finally ends up at a Catholic school, and one of the stipulations of him going there is that he has to stay on his meds. Mm. And of course, when he takes the meds, the voices are decreased, but so are a lot of other uh, impulses in his life. Like, it kind of destroys a lot of his vitality, which, from what I understand, is also a big part of taking antipsychotics. Okay. Um, uh, it, it's that the you know the the sort of people who suffer from manic depression often uh, have said they don't like taking their meds because they're actually like really high during their manic episodes. Yeah, and they they take a, a certain kind of thrill from a certain kind of thrill. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not like thrilling uh, from having manic episodes, but you know then of course they crash down into depressive episodes, and that's kind of have to it, ba- the, find a balance. The idea is that they're the supposed two. to keep you in the middle. That's yeah, the idea. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, he begins having a romance with a young actress named uh, named Taylor Russell from the movie Waves. She was also in Escape Room, hmm. uh, and it's it's very sweet. It's not quite genuine. It does feel a little bit uh, staged, but it's a lot more genuine than Chemical Hearts. Uh, but I would af- hope so. But after a while, it, it does begin to be about sort of the, the the crashing presence of schizophrenia in this boy's life. And I do like that it doesn't come to a happy conclusion about how, oh, and schizophrenia can be cured, and he goes back on his pills, and everything's okay. It actually has a, a little bit more of a realistic outlook on living with mental illness. Okay. Um, but it is, but it's its biggest flaw is that it's really, really polished. It feels really clean. It's like... Um, maybe introducing teens in a YA fiction sort of milieu to the idea of schizophrenia. And I think that might be a a little bit too gentle a way of introducing these notions to people because in real life, it's a lot harsher than that. It's a lot harder than that, than than is depicted in this movie. Yeah. We, we, we experience a lot of the world, you know, we, 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 we all have, limitations based on who we grow up with yeah. the community we grow up in the part of the world we grow up in and they're just there are people who have lives and experiences and cultures that we may just not have a personal connection with early on and then we experience a lot of those uh, uh, different uh, lives and ideas and perspectives through fiction mm. or or nonfiction but whatever we through art and books and especially, I think, when you gear those stories towards young people, and mm-hmm. there are stories that young people are going to watch, you have an enormous responsibility to treat that material 
fairly. Well, because you this might be someone's first introduction to what it would be like to live with that kind of serious mental illness. My my only request is just to not uh, patronize or uh, talk down or underestimate a younger audience. Yeah. Uh, maybe pretend like they'll be able to grasp some of these headier concepts because they pre- can. Yeah, you know about it pretending. Mm. You know, it's just. I mean, you have, might have to introduce it in particular ways. You yeah. can't take certain things for granted. No, but. I'm not saying that I you know, necessarily you know sit a 14 year old down in front of something like the Caveman's Valentine, uh, which is I think a really really good depiction of schizophrenia. Um, it's also one of Samuel L. Jackson's best performances. Mm. Uh, that one is is a, a, a little bit headier and a little bit more adult and a little bit more difficult to, to swallow. Lemons? Casey Lemons directed yeah, yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah, it's really she's really talented. Re- really good movie. I think it's really underrated. Um, so uh, maybe a, a gentler approach might be necessary for somebody who knows nothing about the subject. But I feel like that takes a lot of the edge off. That is maybe well, necessary to tell the story a little bit more accurately. I, I, I think th- I think it's a it's a it's there's a fine line because. You have to acknowledge that you're allowing that this may be the first introduction mm. some people in your target demographic may have yeah. to a certain experience or perspective. Uh, on the other hand, you also don't want to fall into the trap mm. of turning it into some kind of other where yeah. uh, we'll just look at the last one we watched Chemical Hearts where uh, you know there's a guy who isn't going through anything serious and here's someone who's going through, uh, you know, disability and mourning and a hell and frankly a bevy of other serious problems Mm. and he's just learning about it secondhand through her yeah the audience is not that guy the (laughs) audience should be feeling what she is feeling not like vicariously through someone who is being introduced for the first time like let the audience serve that role Mm. So, but this is told from the the his perspective. Though. It's told from his perspective. So that's the, that's at least encourage. I think yeah, that's an encouraging way to do it. I I looked up the director's filmography. It's directed by Thor Freuden Freuden ah, Freudenthal. Yeah. Thor Thor Freudenthal, uh, and he has done a lot of kind of lightweight effects based things. He's done like air, like a lot of TV, like Legends of Tomorrow and Arrow. Uh, he did uh, Hotel for Dogs did, as a movie. He did Hotel for Dogs. He did. Uh, the second Percy Jackson movie. Uh, which you which liked. Was, I didn't I, see that I, one. I liked that one okay. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, and now he's trying to do a little bit more of a serious romance and about or a romance and a, a story about mental illness and schizophrenia and it becomes very special effectsy after a while. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the idea of this sort of dark cloud existing in his head in this abstract sort of way is envisioned by a big CGI cloud of blackness that kind of floats through the crowd. Oh, and it's nice. like... It's a little too literal. I think we well, need to feel it rather than see it. Because it can t- because, yeah. Anyway, uh, so in the so in, is it just a mixed bag, or do you feel I, like it ultimately just doesn't? A, a, li- promise, a little or? bit of a mixed bag. I think there's some things it does right and it does kind of responsibly, but overall, it's it's way too slick. All right. Uh, tell me about. Mm. Let's just do a hard turn here. All right. Uh, tell me about the pale door. Okay, I'm I'm fighting to remember the pale door. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's that, um, that's wow. Because this actually had a striking pitch, and it's a good pitch for a short. Um, mm. It's it's about um, a, a group of old west uh, outlaws, mm. train thieves, and they they uh, they rob a train. They have their and the among the loot is a woman in a chest. They find a chest. They open it up, and there's a woman inside. Creepy. Uh, and it, as it turns out, she is uh, an honest-to-goodness witch. Uh, 
And all of the witches who were burned in Salem are still alive, uh, and they have decided to open up their own bordello of blood. <laughs> so they decide, okay, they decide to take shelter at the bordello of blood. Uh, the witches begin doing yeah. witchy stuff, and it ends up being a big showdown between the outlaws and the witches. And the witches and are the villains. The, and the witches are the villains. The witches are monsters. That's, um... Always, it's always iffy when you do that. Yeah, it sounds a little sexist. Well, it is a little, a little sexist. sexist. It's also like, you know... It's, listen, I, 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 we've all enjoyed stories about witchcraft mm. and, and the supernatural or whatever, but sometimes, you know, there's mm. this really weird line where it's just like, oh, yes, and all the people that they horrifically slaughtered for no reason at Salem, they actually were witches. Mm. And you're just like, ah, and the, and that's not a great... Take. And they look like and they look like a real like flesh and blood people, but occasionally they turn like into monster versions of themselves, okay. and they get like the big Margaret Hamilton noses and chins. Oh, like in like in uh, the witches, like like, like Angela, in the witches. Angela, and, Angela and Houston pulls off her mask, and also and they're all burned up, like they're all ashen and bony and, okay. and yeah, kind of spook, scary looking. Um, however stupid the movie Bordello of Blood is. And uh, no matter and it's how... it's really stupid. It's really stupid. I I have... I take a great deal of pleasure from the idiocy of that movie. I... I wish I, it was dumber. I, I'm, I'm a little I, bit embarrassed about how much I like Bordello of Blood. I'm embarrassed by how much you like it too because I honestly feel like it kind of half-asses the dumbness. Like I wish oh. it was. I wish it was even broader. I feel like right. it's just kind of... It ends up not feeling so much broad as it is cheap so we just didn't take it too seriously like i right. wish you would actually be more creative with how dumb you were letting it be mm. but i understand why you like yeah it. <laughs> then i'm gonna grind your balls into guacamole it's like it's such stupid dialogue it is stupid i dialogue. love it i no, love i love i love that movie you can hate me for loving that movie. i don't hate That's you for fine. loving it i think i, I, I don't I, quite get it though. it's what you call a guilty pleasure i am guilty about the pleasure i take from that movie you, you don't have to feel uh, guilty about it i just disagree. but uh that kind of raucous idiocy is what the pale door lacks. Mm. They play it totally straight. This is like, this should be more, a little bit more like an action movie, right? About the, maybe yeah. a, an assault on precinct 13 thing. It's really downbeat. Oh. There's a lot of conversations about this young, like one of the younger bandits is worried about living up to the legacy of his older brother, or maybe you know, what happened in their past and how these characters are really kind of sad to be doing this. And they're really kind of facing a reckoning with themselves as criminals. And there's a lot of really uh, mellow moments where they're having these conversations and it becomes this really kind of, uh, very serious drama. And then there's all this wild shit happening with all these witch monsters that they, they have to kind of essentially eventually get together and murder. But yeah, mm. all of the, the fun action schlocky stuff that you've come into that premise to see doesn't happen in the movie. It's actually kind of disappointing uh, because it's not schlocky because they took the material a little seriously and because it feels really, really padded. It feels like mm. it should open with the trains, the, the, the train robbery. Yeah. And they run off to the, to the bordello of blood. Yeah. And then they discover there's witches and you're off to the races. Yeah. It sounds like an expensive tales mm. from the crypt or the, tales from the dark side. There's episode. an entire yeah. first act where we get to introduce, where we're introduced to all of the characters in a bar and they all have long conversations about what they do and how they are, you know, where they stand, you know, in relationship with one another within the gang and how they feel about one another before they even start talking about the train heist. No. It's like, no. Pass. You know how you communicate that stuff? Little tiny character moments yeah. that take a second, dress them a certain way, cast a certain 
actor, have them give a certain glint or make a certain kind of joke. It's, that's efficient writing. You know, I'm going to say this right now because uh. sometimes there's a conversation about what counts as a feature film. Mm. And according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, mm. a feature film is any movie that's over 40 minutes long. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I, I honestly think that paying like full price at a movie theater... For a 40-minute movie, I would bulk at that, too. Because I'm not getting yeah. a, enough entertainment for it. Like, at least show a couple. However, there was a time in Hollywood history where a movie could be 71 minutes, and that would be enough. Because they would just well, jam-pack the movie, hmm. and it would be really... The original Frankenstein is that short, and it's, it doesn't feel like you're missing yeah, anything. A lot of the Esther Rogers films are, yeah, yeah 70 minutes. And that's and 70, 80 minutes. I think hmm. we need to go back to l- allowing movies to be that long. Yeah, because yeah. I have seen like independent like horror movies where you just know that they were padding the film to reach a certain runtime because it's it's expected. I I swear to God, there's a movie I couldn't tell you what it was off the top of my head. It was some bad found footage thing that nobody ever talked about. <laughs> got really straight to video and whatever. But the last 15 minutes of the movie were credits. <laughs> 15 minutes of a movie without that many people who worked on it. Hmm. Just to get to and the only explanation I can think of is to get to an arbitrary length so that they could, I don't know, play at festivals or so that it would look better on a DVD. I want to destigmatize shorter movies because yeah, then you can no. get movies that like trim the fat off and are just really strong because we've all seen hmm. padded films. Yeah, well, and, and uh, we were challenged by that just a couple weeks ago by a really uh, effective, I thought very good horror movie called Host, yeah, which yeah. was 55 minutes long yeah. and, and it did everything it needed to. Um, yeah, got in, got out. There's yeah. nothing meaningful I would add to that like yeah, it's uh, Ro- fine Roger Ebert r- rather famously said and this is a, a quote of his I really sure. enjoy is uh, no no great film is too long and no no bad film is short enough yeah uh, every every film is going to be the exact length it needs to be uh, if it's gr- if it's good yeah any great film is going to be the exact length and we've all seen like director's cuts mm. where like you watch the theatrical cut and it just it's a slog like you're watching mm. Kingdom of Heaven and you're just like <laughs> so tedious but then you watch the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven which it reinserts a lot of subplots that all of a sudden make everything that happens not only make more sense but feel like more emotionally resonant mm. and all of a sudden it plays great it's like 40 minutes longer mm. and it doesn't feel as long, long. Yeah, it yeah. feels really short actually because we're actually the plot actually works. I, I haven't seen the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. Like it's I not, saw it's not a, the it's theatrical one. I didn't it's like a, it. It goes from like a one and a half star movie where like yeah okay the scale is impressive mm. and it's not like a total wash to like a three three and a half star movie. Like it's not definitely <laughs> not one of Ridley Scott's best, but it goes yeah. from being bad to being good. This this is a a, two, a a great three star movie that they bloated into a, like a two star movie. Ah, they kind of they took away a lot of its uh, just fun schlocky energy by trying to treat it like it was a bigger thing than it was. Mm. It's like you don't need to take this material in this way yeah. because you're kind of hurting it. Well, anyway, um, yeah, I was, I might, I might be on the losing edge of that one, but uh, I, I did not like the pale door. Well, that's fine. Uh, the, next up, we have a movie that I saw and you didn't. What? <laughs> it happens. It happens. Why not? Mm. Uh, so there's a new documentary that is on YouTube. You don't have to, you don't have to pay to see this one. Just go Sorry. right to. You don't have a subscription or nothing. Go to YouTube and you can check this thing out. Mm. It is called Live from the Space Age: A Halix Story, and Halix is spelled. H A L Y X. Halix. Halix. Do you remember Halix? Does that ring any bells to you? Halix is is out of my okay. realm of experience. Halix 
is a completely forgotten chapter of Disney history. And it's an interesting chapter, and it makes for a very fun movie. These are really fun because Disney is really obsessive about archiving certain things. Yeah. They, they don't keep track of their entire catalog. They only keep track of the things that they can keep alive for monetary purposes. Yeah. If they, and in fact, there's actually a lot of Disney media that is considered lost, even though it was immensely popular. I was just mentioning this to you. Like mm. there were like shows on the Disney channel that were immensely popular. Stuff like uh, Dumbo's, was it Dumbo's Carnival? Dumbo's. There's a Dumbo TV series. There was a live action oh, yeah. Dumbo TV series and Dumbo was like a Sesame Street animatronic. And it was cute. I watched it when I was a kid. I it definitely wasn't objectionable. Mm. Uh, and there was like a hundred episodes of this thing, and it lived on in syndicate in like uh, not syndication in repeats and through like the nineties. And they did no archiving whatsoever of that, and only like ten episodes of it remain. Mm. The rest of it's just gone. Yeah, and that's true for a lot of different media, uh, whether it's Disney or otherwise. That you know, you'd think that something from the eighties would be hard to vanish. Apparently it's quite easy. You just mm. don't take care of it and don't talk about it anymore. And then it's gone. And Halix is, is actually one of those things. And Halix is kind of neat. Uh, Halix was a live show at Disneyland that was Star Wars meets Kiss. <laughs> that, which was big at the time. That kind of gl oh, yeah. glam sci-fi thing was, was actually pretty common. So it was, uh, it was 19, it was the early 1980s. I think it was 80, 81. Mm. And, you know, Kiss was very, very much in the public consciousness. If you're unfamiliar with Kiss in terms of like what they were really all about, like maybe you've heard their music, uh, they brought a lot of theatricality and, and showpersonship to the actual stage show. They didn't just play cool rock songs. And they played a lot of cool rock songs, but they had costumes and music and pyrotechnics and they were going really nuts with this. And they, there's a, the, some various musicians and, and uh, uh, decided to get together and they decided to craft a band. Was not, it called stunt rock? <laughs> no, it was called, it was called Halix. Yeah, yeah. They decided to craft a band that would not exist by based on, okay, so we had a guitarist who had a dream and like a singer and they got along mm. real well. It was like, no, we're going to create a stage show. Yeah. yeah. And we're going to create a sci-fi stage show where there's like a guy in a giant Wookiee costume on the base and like an amphibious frog monster doing backflips on stage. Sounds and wonderful. the pianist is a robot in like a hover chair. And the, and the, the lead singer is like, Pat Benatar from space <laughs> and we're going to be called Halix and no one interviewed with the film and everyone who's like alive who remembers mm -hmm. Halix and was like part of Halix is there. Nobody knows what the fuck Halix means. Like there was a, they almost called it Starfire or Squad, S-K-W-A-D so, or whatever. It sounds like Helix, which is a, yeah, know, exactly. a cool sounding it, word. It, it sounds sci-fi, but maybe yeah. we can kind of brand Halix a little bit better. And, um, so what they did was they put together this really elaborate, like you got animatronics, you got uh, uh, you know, digital keyboard chairs and different monsters and different kinds of like, you know, stage interactions. And they would put on live shows at Disneyland for one summer. They put on live shows at Disneyland. And the idea was we get them on, we get to put them in uh, uh, Tomorrowland. And then we show people how cool this is. And audiences loved it. Like every like home video, it's all home video footage. No one ever bothered to get like proper footage of this. It was all home video footage and audiences got really into it. It was really fun. Uh, the music ranged from okay to better than okay. Mm. 
some of the music is weird like they they what they did was they found a lot of like songs that were like sent into Disney records as like demo tapes and uh they just picked the ones that sounded the best including a song called Jailbait oh jeez which is actually a song about the concept of jailbait and the woman who wrote that song when Disney was just like yeah we want to use your song Jailbait she was like do you know what that did, word means? Did yeah. you listen to the lyrics? And they're like, yeah, no one's going to care. We're like, they might. Mm. <laughs> like, I thought they would, like, change the lyrics or something. Like, we like the tune, but do we really need to call it mm. that? We'll just change the lyrics and who mm. cares? No, they just sang mm. this fucking song. And it's about, it's basically this, which, like. Which part? Was this at World or Land? Land. land okay. It was in L.A. Then, then I might or, have seen them. Because you I, might have. I, I went to Disneyland several times when I was a kid. They're, they had and I do remember, and everything. And I do remember uh, bands uh, emerging from the ground in Tomorrowland and singing songs. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see, I'm gonna, back into the floor I'm gonna they were see if I can find the Halix poster that they had around <laughs> Disneyland advertising <laughs> the Halix shows because this looks familiar to me. Does that look familiar to you? Halix now appearing? Uh, I'm, I mean, everything looks like that. Okay. Every, every pinball machine I played looks like that. So. Uh, but uh, in any case, it's a story of, it's a rags to riches story except there were no riches. Um, they almost had a hit. They almost had record contracts. They almost had touring shows, and wow. it just never came together. And it's now mostly of this forgotten chapter of Disney history. So, they got everyone together, interviewed them, talked about the story, and it's a really fascinating tale of Disney failure. And a bunch of people who were obviously very talented. Some of their stories are quite tragic. You'll notice there's at least one prominent figure of the band who they are not interviewing, and you're just like. Oh God, what happened to them? <laughs> Are they okay? Did they just not want to be part of the documentary? Did it go really bad for them? And of course you're just waiting for the worst to happen. And and you realize that almost none of the stage show stuff existed. Like all the costumes just rotted away in a closet somewhere and they're all gone and no one cares. But this was an Indiegogo documentary uh, from the folks at Defunct Land. Which okay. if you're not watching Defunct Land, check it out. It is a really interesting YouTube channel dedicated to the history of amusement parks, particularly history of amusement parks that no longer exist mm. or attractions at amusement parks that no longer exist. And what they do is they scrounge up all the footage that they possibly can of these various attractions that are gone mm. from history. You'll never see them again. And they put together the story of how they were created and how they failed and how, how they succeeded for a while and then eventually vanished. And if that sounds like it would be boring, I assure you mm. it's not. Is this, is this a... a What's his name? Brett, Brett Whitcomb? Brent no, Whitcomb. The guy, so. the guy who did uh, the Rockafire Explosion documentary and the Glow documentary? I don't think it is. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, I know Kevin Perjurer uh, worked on this. Uh, and that's oh, right. that's the uh, one of the people behind uh, Defunct Brett, Yeah, Brett Whitcomb uh, has done a few uh, really fascinating documentaries also about these kind of... a. F- corners of pop ephemera that only yeah. people of a certain age would be at all familiar with. And he did one about the rock of fire explosion, yeah. which is a band, which was the animatronic band at Chuck E. Cheese's. Oh, okay. Um, there you go. Yeah. Or, or rather showbiz pizza before they were bought out by Chuck E. Cheese's. Ah, there you go. And yeah, it was about just the people who designed those machines, the people who came up with the characters, the entire marketing blitz that went into creating something like the rock of fire explosion mm. and what happened to it. And where are those machines now? And there's actually a lot of shots of them going through 
uh, just the creepy old warehouses where those robots are still there and yeah. the plastic skin that they put over them is oh, beginning so, to degrade. So, so it's like weird. melting off. Looks so gross. Yeah. They found uh, like in a box somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, like the animatronic of Hoggle from Labyrinth and don't look up those pictures. They're terrifying. <laughs> like oh, this whole skin like, just rotted away all weird and gross. It's like this, this robot thing with eyeballs. Yeah. But anyway, you know, Wendy and I were a big fan of uh, digging up what history might consider failures and, and sort of reassessing them on their own terms. Mm. That's what Cancel Too Soon was all about from its inception and still to this day. And I think that there's this overall idea that if it wasn't a success, it's not worth revisiting, and that's mm. bullshit. And Halix is... If you liked Anvil, the story of Anvil, I think you'll really like Halix. I think that's mm. a good example there, right there, where someone who's like, they're always on the cusp of something and they never got there, but their story is really interesting, the people involved are really fun, and... Yeah, I, I think this is just a neat chapter of history. And when you're watching it, it's hard not to imagine, God, how did they fuck this up? Because actually, Halix is such a good idea. Like, you got a fun... Is it? <laughs> it is, actually. You got a fun Star Wars-themed rock stage show for, mm. like, kids and teenagers that could travel all around the country and, like, mm. put on live shows. You've also... All of them are, like, distinct characters, and you could totally use those for, like toys or animated series or hell a movie Mm -hmm. i would look they're like after watching this documentary i'm like i want to make two movies one a fictional movie about the making of halix so that we can finally see like the actual stage show the way it actually looked and not just from like someone's home video camera from like the 20th row right so i kind of want to just see this like kind of you know get get zemeckis on the case have him recreate halix that's why that's why zemeckis did that movie the walk which was Mm. all about uh you know the guy who uh did the philip uh, Philip pt yeah philip pt he did the uh uh, tightrope walk between the twin towers and there's a, a much better documentary about it called Man on Wire. But the problem with Man on Wire is everyone was so awestruck by the sight that they forgot to film it. They didn't bring a camera with them. So yeah. Robert Zemeckis makes this whole movie. And most of the movie is basically just Man on Wire. But once he actually gets you on the wire and you get to see what it would have been like up there, well, it's he, fucking amazing. He, he recreated, yeah, the towers and the special effects. And he shot it in like this really deep focus 3D. Oh, so it's, it, I gives saw you, the, it gives you vertigo. It's actually really spectacular in theaters. It, yeah, that one. It's like, oh, if they ever bring that back for like an IMAX screening somewhere, do not miss that. It's like, again, if you've seen the documentary, you know the story, but the last 30 minutes are so fucking good. And and you think Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like really hamming it up. No, actually, the real guy behaved like that. (laughs) He's actually actually giving a good performance. Um, But so that would be cool. But I also kind of want to see like... This, like, cheesy, like, rock band in space movie. Like, actually, just, like, let's do it. Like, let's make Vicious Lips, but make it good. Like, let's do that shit. (laughs) Have them fight Vicious Lips. Why not? Who who has the rights to Vicious Lips? Let me see who has the rights to Vicious Lips. Vicious Lips, by the way, is... It's an an Albert Pune movie from the 80s. I think it's a Canon film. It might be, If it's it's owned by Canon, they're never going to let it go. Because they're they're just vengeful, spiteful bastards over there. (laughs) Watch watch the two warring documentaries about canon films sometime. That should tell you enough. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, it's, it's an Albert Pune film about a, a girl punk band in space that crash lands and they have to land live in a crash ship for a bit. It's it, it's such a better pitch than, it's, it, than it's a movie. So, yeah, it sounds cooler than it actually is. Yeah, it is. sounds like it'd be like the perfect double feature with Streets of Fire or something. It's just not that good, mm-hmm. but... It's like um, slow moving and kind of dull. I mean, look, it, it, no. It looks like uh, Empire Pictures had it. I think that's technically Full Moon now. Oh, okay. Um, I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, they had some of the same moon. Full Moon people behind it, yeah, but... Yeah. You know, they did Puppet Master Terrorization. So, yeah, I mean, it could be a thing. But anyway, uh, anyway, make Halix, and by all means, go to YouTube, 
Go to the Defunct Land page. Watch their shit because their documentaries are really interesting. Just pick one at random. I think you'll be fascinated. But definitely watch the Halix documentary because it's a really good documentary and it's something most people had no idea about. And it yeah. was a lot of people put their heart and souls into it and they made something really neat and it almost got completely swept away by history. Um, all right, last thing. Tell me about Tesla. Uh, Tesla is Elon Musk's company. Tesla was named after Nikola Tesla, who was an inventor. Uh, he, he was, um, a lot of people see him as a rival to Edison. They both worked in electrics, and he believed in alternating current, which was uh, a little bit of a novelty at the time. And everybody said, no, that's too dangerous. You can't have alternating current. Hey, guess what? Everything we use is alternating current. Uh, it, it, was, it was his ideas that actually made a lot of the, elect- the electrics that we use Tesla was, possible. Tesla was incredibly ahead of his time, but Tesla was not good at marketing himself the way that Edison was. And mm. so Tesla's inventions didn't take hold and he didn't get a lot of credit. Yeah, and, he, was, yeah, he was also yeah. he was shy and he was a bit of a grump and... Uh, yeah, had had a lot of um, weird OCD things that he had to to struggle with all his life. Like he had to uh, wipe down everything he ate off of. He had to eat things in like multiples of three. He had yeah. a, de- a deathly fear of women with pearl earrings. Like he had these I didn't know about yeah, that one. little uh, little things that uh, sort of stymied his ability to uh, interact regularly. Uh, here is a biopic about Tesla. Tesla is played by Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is game. He'll do anything. And you He's know a what? Great actor. He's good in anything. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do like Ethan Hawke. Yeah, it's, I, I can't remember the last it's, time I saw him suck in anything. Like, he's mm. always, he might not always be in a good movie, but he's always bringing it. Yeah. Like, remember he was the cowboy pimp in Valerian? It's like, oh, yeah. look, Ethan Hawke as a cowboy pimp. How weird. <laughs> and yet, weirdly appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> like, somehow it just makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, but yeah, here he is playing Tesla. This is directed by uh, Michael Almereda, who worked with uh, Ethan Hawke once before when they did Hamlet together. I need to revisit that Hamlet. I remember not liking that Hamlet at all. When I, it came I, out. Yeah, I remember it being a little bit too film studenty. Well, because uh, it was set in the present day, and they decided to get all cute and have mm-hmm. like you know instead of like putting on a play, he, he made, made a student. He film made a student and... film and like did the research at Blockbuster where he was watching the Crow City of Angels on well, the and, monitors, and, and you're like, what? He's given the to be or not to be speech which is all about you know the currents to Orion lose the name of action and should I take action and he's walking through the action section of Blockbuster yeah wow I thought it what's was what's stirring symbolism yeah I thought it was kind uh, of blunt and obvious but yeah. I know a lot of people who really like it so I we did, need to revisit it one of these days I, I did like uh, Ophelia when she has her sort of her madness speech uh, in the play she's like wearing a flower garland and spreading mm. flowers uh, in the movie she's a photography student so she's scattering Polaroids of flowers. I thought that was kind of a cute, That's cute amazing. modern detail. Did, did you ever see um, uh, Michael Almereda's uh, take on Dracula's daughter? Yeah, Nadia. Nadia. Nadia is really great. Nadia is really, really cool. Nadia is really, really fun. Uh, it's about Dracula's daughter. Uh, Dracula dies, and she's going to try to figure out what to do with her life, and she falls in love with a young woman. Mm-hmm. And Peter Fonda plays this like totally like drugged he's, he's out Van, Van Helsing, this yeah. drugged out Van Helsing, and um, Jared Harris plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nadia's brother who has one of my favorite lines in any vampire movie when she's like psychically <laughs> trying to reach out to them he yells I'm getting a psychic fax 
it's 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 goofy in that '90s indie sort of way. Uh, parts of it were filmed on a, a Fisher Price Pixel Vision camera, which had like uh, twenty Michael, pixels. It's yeah, like really Mike, Michael Almoreto is maybe the only filmmaker to champion the Pixel Vision camera. <laughs> in, in the 1980s, Fisher Price put out one of their least successful products. It was called the Pixel Vision. It was a video camera for kids mm. that recorded onto audio cassettes, and you just would plug it into the special Pixel Vision camera. You could hook up to your TV. You could film anything. Uh, the cool thing about the Pixel Vision camera is, yeah, it all looked really pixelated. Because, yeah, we yeah. had like, you know, we're talking about uh, TVs that have you know, thousands and thousands of pixels across. This was like, yeah, 20. <laughs> uh, but it, it weirdly had some of the best focus of any camera, professional or commercial grade. Yeah. Like you could zoom in and film like a fingerprint or you could get a big landscape and it was able to focus on both, both of those things. Yeah. And he's managed to work it into all of his films. Anyway, Michael Murray is an interesting film. He's an interesting filmmaker. Uh, here he's making a biopic of Tesla. Tesla was a really interesting, quirky guy. Uh, he's made his way into pop culture in a big way. He's a, become a, a sort of a nerd and engineering hero in a lot of ways. He shows up in video games and board games all the time. He was played by David uh, Bowie in the movie it, The Prestige yeah, he's, where, he's, they, where they postulated that he was the not only a great scientist, but basically he created like m- machinery that like literally could not exist. He's like, just that like he, amazing. He invented like a cloning machine. It's like, yeah. no, that's not what Tesla did. But no, uh, fun to think about though. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, Tesla and, claimed to have invented a death ray. And then he was like, well, that's stupid. Why did I invent that? I just started putting it in a well, drawer. And never... Tesla did have big ideas. He uh, figured out ways to just sort of pull energy out of the cosmos. He could use like sort of cosmic rays to power batteries. They would yeah. never need to be charged. Things would just have power. Uh, and uh, a lot of these things have been proven. A lot of these things have, haven't have been proven. But uh, it eventually all came down to the fact that uh, a lot of his inventions couldn't make money. Uh, he wasn't in bed with the right money people. Yeah. Edison was. So Edison got credit and a lot of his inventions were uh, the ones that made him a lot of money. And in fact, some of Edison's most famous publicity stunts were literally just to discredit Tesla. Like he actually yeah, would like, use Tesla's like alternating current idea to execute elephants in public. And, and there's a uh, scenes, horrifying. In, scenes in this movie about what kind of electricity would need to be used to execute a human being in a prison. Yeah. And the, you know, the invention of the electric chair is all wrapped up into this. The history um, of the electric chair is fucking fascinating. I mean, it's horrifying, but like, yeah, there's I mean, a lot of weird I mean, it, it, elements of that it's, story. It's still fucking capital punishment. But no, yeah, it's horrifying. It's, like, there was, there's a story I read once about a guy who was uh, in one of the first prisons that used it for mm-hmm. a moment's uh, execution. He was an engineer, and he was in the prison when they were installing it, and he actually improved it. Mm-hmm. And then when he got let out of prison, he ended up committing another crime or allegedly committing a crime and ended up getting executed in the chair he perfected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit! And they didn't know how it worked for a long time so yeah. people's heads would catch on fire it's and people's horrifying. eyeballs would yeah. rocket out of their sockets. Yeah, That's was, okay. Don't don't get too excited about I, that. I just, it's, it's something I've studied because I was yeah. a grim teenager. But, uh... Michael Amelreda does address all of these things in in the movie, and he actually has uh, the narrator character, who was uh, Tesla's wife, uh, sit down in the movie, turn to the camera, open up a laptop, and look stuff up on Wikipedia to to give you sort of like the bullet points as to Tesla's and Edison's lives throughout. She's actually like narrating from a modern perspective. And it's kind of fun. And it's not quite as as graceful as uh, Radioactive, a film we... uh, reviewed recently about Mary Curie. Yeah. About how uh, her invention, we get to see her invent something and we get to see sort of a 
the modern use of that thing. Yeah, there was a ripple both, effect. Both positive like, and negative. Yeah. So there's like flash forwards to the present day to see like, oh, she invented these radioactive things. Great. Now people can do like x-rays and cancer treatments better. Also bombs. You know, there's yeah. a lot of like these these good and bad things that came from her discoveries and it puts her in a broader historical context. This film just tells you <laughs> just okay. has somebody sit in front of wikipedia and read it off to you while you're watching the movie i i, I kind uh, of admire the moxie of that i suppose so and uh, the problem is the problem is because this film is quite bad oh no uh, is that uh, that sucks tesla is presented as such a, a, a he doesn't speak a lot he's just the silent stoic character that we don't really get a good sense as to the kind of zest he's bringing to the world. You would think a biopic about Tesla would be this steampunk wet dream, where there'd just be <laughs> lightning bolts and Tesla coils and you know like, electricity flying one everywhere. Of the coolest, one of the coolest introductions to any character in mm. any movie is in The Prestige, where Hugh Jackman like walks up to Nikola Tesla, and he's in the middle of a giant like room-sized Tesla coil, yeah, and there are like just, lightning bolts flying everywhere, and he's just walking through them. He just them walks going, through, and there's like, lightning coming off his shoulders. Like, yeah. Hello, I'm Nikola Tesla. I'm Nikola like, Tesla. Holy shit. <laughs> Historically accurate? No. Exciting? Absolutely. Fucking amazing yeah. is what it is. <laughs> I think this is going for uh, this weird balance between historical accuracy and this weird sort of art house aesthetic, this mm. kind of downbeat art house aesthetic that Michael Almereda has been fostering throughout his career. Uh, he can do something really exciting with biopics. He did a really great film called Experimenter a couple years ago, um, which was another film about a real scientist who studied behavioralism. I forgot the name of the scientist, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this film, he's bringing no sense of actual excitement or importance to Tesla's life. Rather than dramatizing any importance, we just sort of are told he's important. And then we cut to Tesla and he's just sort of sitting there grunting and inventing something with wires and they're talking about how they can't get funding for it and i understand that the need to get funding and the need for publicity was a big part of any inventor's life mm. but can we get sort of the excitement of invention in this yeah. the way people are like well, what are we looking to his inventions as these kinds of saviors of humanity it's tricky sometimes to to dramatize inspiration yeah mm -hmm. and we've all seen it like done real real badly mm. Like, um, this one, the movie's goofy enough that it gets away with it, but, like, in Independence Day, when Jeff Goldblum's like, uh, how do we defeat these aliens? And Judd mm. Harris is just like, hey, you gotta get some sleep, you're gonna catch a cold. <gasps> of course, a computer virus! Mm. That's, uh, yeah. that's trite. We all know that's trite. But the reason why we gravitate towards stories of people who have brilliant ideas is because we don't all have brilliant ideas all the time, and we don't always see them through to completion, and so... That's what we want mm. from a biopic about these people is to see that what pretty, led yeah. to the create like yeah, and sometimes it's trite, but like we want to see what led to this invention or this song or this movie or poem or whatever that we all know and care about. Mm. So yeah, that sounds really frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the modern touches, I feel like, aren't really... I, I think they're sort of distracting from the fact that Michael Almereda doesn't know how to dramatize those things. Mm. So he brings in these sort of modern flourishes to give it a little bit of an aesthetic flair, but it really just kind of bogs the film down and highlights the fact that he doesn't have an interesting character here. Uh, uh, there's a karaoke number. Okay. Where, where Tesla, in character, sings Everybody Wants to Rule the World. 
we couldn't do a, she blinded me with science like yeah you, no <laughs> that's weird science weird science was right there i would Wouldn't kill to see great? tesla sing weird science <laughs> from my heart and from my hand why don't people understand my intention that makes more yeah. sense for tesla mm. that's a great lyric for tesla yeah. actually <laughs> like that's an actual issue he had to deal with in his life the problem is uh, Weird Science is associated with another movie called Weird Science. Yeah, but no... It was written for another movie. Who cares? Uh, like, it's fine. Who cares? I don't okay, give a right. shit. It's, it's whatever. Yeah, it's, that movie it's, was it's forever just, ago, and it's not that well remembered, it's, so it's, it's fine. It's you not very... It it's, it's just dreadfully dull, this Tesla yeah, movie. It's dreadfully, dreadfully dull. Uh, I, which is really upsetting because Tesla really was an interesting guy who had a lot of interesting ideas. This was our ch- and would this Ethan one... Hawke's an interesting actor and Michael Amalred is an interesting director sometimes, but this time just no. I've been toying with the idea of like a mental test for like, is this a good biopic or not? And I mean uh, like an actual biopic where they're ostensibly trying to tell you the real life story of someone uh, in order to be respectful to it or to raise issues with it or whatever. Would this movie have been better if it had been a highly fictional version of the character who solved mysteries? See, that I don't know, because I've I've seen that Edgar Allan Poe movie. Well, where, that, where and that Poe, movie stinks. Yeah, and that movie was, wasn't good. I think but, it was just called The Raven. And but, the, like, but you can imagine in your head, like, okay, so we've got a lot of crimes here at the turn of the century, and... Tesla has a lot of inventions that could help us solve these crimes. Well, the thing with Tesla is that's been done to death with Tesla. I'm sure it has. But we've like, seen Tesla fictional. I've seen Tesla fictionalized in many, many different ways. One of my favorite ways Tesla was fictionalized was in one of my favorite radio dramas, actually. Oh. Uh, ZBS, one of my favorite radio drama producers, they're still out there, uh, made a drama set in the future about Ruby the Galactic Gumshoe. <laughs> And she she solves mysteries in space and a lot of them involve going to like invisible dimensions and all these things that you can't film. And uh, in one of the stories, uh, one of the characters, he's a techie. uh, He's just this uh, very mild mannered, very kind, very uh, kind hearted character who's just really into machines. And one of the dramas, he's visited by the patron saint of all techies, Nikola Tesla, who appears to him in like the spiritual form. And he's he's essentially a mad scientist in that one. Mm. It's like, you must build me these sonic oscillators and we will get the entire dimension vibrating. Has that been tried? Has that been tried before? (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Is it dangerous? (laughs) Of course. Yes. (laughs) Let's do it! <laughs> and, and he, like, starts singing pop songs. I, I must make all the world vibrate in these sonic vibrations. I'd like to teach the world. To... It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I highly recommend Ruby 4. There was a, there was a video game I, I really liked that I tested on it called Dark Void, uh, which is mm-hmm. about, uh, like, an alternate dimension. Aliens are trying to, like, invade our dimension mm-hmm. and attack it. But humans have been sucked into their dimension. And one of the humans that have been sucked into the dimension is, ne- is Tesla. Mm. who, with access to alien technology, has done some really amazing things, and he comes up with, like, this really mm. cool jetpack that you yeah. get to fly around in, and <laughs> for brief fits and starts, that game is totally fucking awesome, but I completely broke it in one level to the extent that it corrupted my save file so I could oh, never no. finish it. Okay. So although I actually really liked it, also, fuck that game. That's a huge bug. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah, bad that's thing, a but, problem. but like, yeah, so it's kind of neat. Yeah. A, a, a straight rendition of Tesla's life would have been nice, and uh, mm-hmm. Michael Amoredo wasn't capable of doing that. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I saw this one on Twitter recently. Uh, you either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a video game character. <laughs> well, yeah, and that, that, that applies to, to this movie. All right, well, uh, let's review these movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Mm. 
Once again, if you're new, the critically acclaimed scale, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. C is average. Mm-hmm. Most movies are average. C+, plus is above average. Some movies are above average. These are the movies we genuinely recommend, whether they're merely quite good or the best movie ever made, they get a C+. Plus. And C- minus is below average, in that we do not recommend them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they could be anything from just not particularly good to the worst movie ever made. And the one exception we've ever made for that uh, is Cats. Which I think we gave a D plus. <laughs> I think yeah, I think we gave it a D. Uh, I don't think that'll happen this week. Uh, yeah. So uh, on the critically acclaimed scale, what do you give Tesla? Tesla uh, is a C minus, not a, a, a passionate C minus, but there's not a lot to recommend it. It's just a boring movie. That's a shame. Um, even Kyle McLaughlin can't save it. He plays Edison. Damn it. Uh, live from the space sage. Sorry, live from the space stage. A Halix story now available on YouTube. Uh, it gets a C plus from me. It is not one of those transcendent documentaries that like will change your life, mm-hmm. but it is a really interesting documentary about a completely forgotten chapter of Disney and sci-fi and music history. Uh, and I learned a lot from it. I was amused by it and engaged my imagination. And I'm really glad I saw it. And I think you will be too. Uh, the Pale Door. The Pale Door, um, also C minus. Uh, a lot of C minuses this week. Yeah, um, yeah, it did a little, little too long, a little too padded to really, uh, really enjoy. It, it's uh, it either needs to be schlock or it needs to be like a really moody drama, and it strikes this weird balance that doesn't work. That's a shame. Uh, words mm. on bathroom walls. A C. Okay, I, th- I think it's a, a. Although it's really polished and it's really kind of special effectsy, I think it at least uh, is. Facing in a responsible direction okay. when it uh, is telling a story of a young person with suffering from mental uh, illness. You can do a lot worse. In fact, we did this week with Chemical Hearts, <laughs> uh, which uh, I, I, I'm sure everyone involved in it was very sincere, but it's hackneyed and mm. hollow and the focus is entirely wrong. And I don't buy it in any way that I'm supposed to. And it's one of the worst movies I've seen all year. And that's saying something because <laughs> wow. it's, you know, it's not been the best year. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, big old C minus for me. C minus for me, too. Yeah. It's just an insufferable, insufferable melodrama. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, Ivan, the one and only. The, the one the, and only the Ivan. The one and only Ivan. Yeah. Um, like, it, it's so innocuous, it's hard for me to hate it, yeah. even though I kind of hate it. Um. But I can still give it a C minus. Okay, uh, it's you know it's not a painful C minus, but it's n- not good. No, a, a lot of like a, yeah. l- a little kid might like it, but you know it's it's not. A, That's not a, ter- a high bar. It's not a terribly sophisticated movie. Oh, like the idea that little kids would like it. I mean, that might make it functional, but that does that make yeah. it good? Not necessarily. No, no, no. I liked I, a lot of crap when I was a yeah. kid, and I understand a lot of a lot of these Disney films. This was meant to be a theatrical release, and a lot of these films. Uh, are meant to be sort of expensive confections. They're like the you were recently describing on an, uh, a letters episode, uh, an ice cream treat you could buy at Disneyland that was yeah. just like over sugared, yeah. and was really really good to eat when you're at an amusement park. This yeah. is meant to feel like a confection at an amusement park. That's a function, but it's not nourishing. Yeah, might even hurt you at the end of the day. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Well, this one this one won't, won't make you barf, but it's not going to nourish you. Uh, so uh, that is that for the new releases. Now we're on to the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, where every week during the pandemic, while movies are mostly not at theaters, and if they are, we're not going, mm. uh, we are taking the opportunity to catch up on movies that one or both of us 
missed. And this week, our patrons were given the opportunity to pick from a variety of 1970s movies that are available on Amazon Prime. Hmm. And the film that won was a film called The Stepford Wives. <laughs> and The Stepford Wives is a horror classic, and it's actually one of the few, like, really famous horror classics that I just hadn't gotten around to yet. I knew all about it. Mm. It's uh, the story of the Stepford Wives has long since filtered into the public consciousness so that the, the, word, the word Stepford is now a verb. Yeah, the word Stepford. People just know that the word Stepford stands for people who have been uh, brainwashed or replaced uh, with whatever is culturally or socially acceptable. Mm. And they have lost all sense of personality and self. Um, the movie itself uh, is actually... I mean, once you know where it's going, I think it probably loses some of its power, but mm. it's still staggeringly well made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whitney, it, tell, it, me, tell me about your experience with Stepford Wives. And it has uh, the, the same vibe as Rosemary's Baby, which was kind of what it was going for. Well, it's also uh, based on a book by the same author, same, Ira yeah. Levin. And indeed, the structure is very, very similar. There is a woman who is in a marriage with a man who is more interested in his career than he is in her. Mm. And she begins to suspect that the environment in which they have moved is actually very sinister and very sinister specifically to her. Hmm. And he doesn't believe her, and he may in fact be part yeah. of this sinister conspiracy to keep her down. Yeah. And this takes a very literal form in both Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives, but in both instances, they're actually very carefully crafted allegories for the oppression of women. The oppression of women specifically by uh, post-war 1950s domesticity. Yeah. And how, uh, it, as it turns out, I think it's more effective in The Stepford Wives than it is in Rosemary's Baby, mm. about how th a certain view of uh, women in a domestic place was wholly ever invented as uh, this artificial construct uh, by men. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never something that the woman had any kind of input in. This was something that men put into place specifically to keep their wives essentially as domestic pets. Yeah, the idea uh, is that men find the idea of mm -hmm. a wife who exists only to maintain the house, mm -hmm. be sexually available and interested, and have no mm -hmm. opinions of her own that could threaten whatever the man feels or wants at any given time, mm -hmm. is seen as not a horrifying uh, act of dehumanization, but convenient. Yeah, like, wouldn't yeah. it be convenient if this were the case? And in fact, towards the end of the movie, uh, one of the men actually approaches uh, Catherine Ross, who plays the star of this. You might know her from Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Uh, approaches her and just says, listen, if this, if this, the tables were turned, wouldn't you want an ideal sexy man who just catered to your every need? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, not if you're a mature person. <laughs> yeah. Like, I understand, like, the idea that, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice? But then you think about it for half a second and you realize mm -hmm. that's monstrous terrible and on top of it all dissatisfying mm. it's that you're devoid of human connection and the idea that the world consists almost entirely of men who don't care yeah. about dehumanizing women they only care about servicing mm. their own shallow needs is and, something and that all, is literalized here and, 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 I, and I love Sadly, we know too many mm. people who ascribe to that and the men are not depicted in this film as you know these titans of industry like they perhaps yeah. view themselves they're seen as like really kind of petty shallow dudes who don't have really anything on their minds yeah 
they just don't want to do anything. They're mm-hmm. lazy and immature people. And I think that's a really good way to depict the men because uh, that's kind of, kind of what's at the heart of this movie. Um, I, I guess we have to talk about what this film is about and what the twist is uh, yeah. because I think everybody kind of knows what it is. Like I knew it's interesting for me because I hadn't seen this movie. I, had, I hadn't seen the remake, mm. the but re- I knew all about the yeah. basic gist of it. The idea is that Catherine Ross... Uh, moves to the town of Stepford, Connecticut, and all the women there seem weirdly placid mm-hmm. and comfortable in these extremely sexist roles. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, when she tries to connect to them on a personal level, on a political level, to try to bring yeah, feminism into this community, they are completely oblivious mm-hmm. to the idea that this might benefit them. Yeah, she she's a, a career woman. She's an aspiring photographer. She's an artist. She's a feminist. Uh, she loves living in the city. That's something she says yeah. early in the movie. She loves. She's like got New York in her blood and living yeah. in this tiny town. And Connecticut is not good for her. She has no kindred spirits here. Yeah. And when she talks about how like when you when my husband you she's talking to him at the in the scene uh, when you said would you like to consider moving out of the city? I didn't realize you were already looking at houses. And when you said, would you take a look at this house? I didn't realize you had already made a down payment. Mm. You are why, making yeah, all why these decisions. Why de- asking me at all? Why yeah, ask me at all? Exactly. You're making all these decisions for me. There's a really telling moment. This is a screenplay by William Goldman, who we recently mm. covered a film he wrote called The Marathon Man. Uh, William Goldman is one of the greatest screenwriters who ever lived, period. Mm. He does an incredible amount of incredibly nuanced, yet completely on-point work and makes it feel very natural. Yeah. And this is a great example of that. And there's, like, this bit towards the beginning of the movie where they've just moved to Stepford and there's been a small car accident in the parking lot of a grocery store. And the woman who was driving the car has broken. (laughs) And she (laughs) keeps, like, repeating the same things over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so they call an ambulance and the ambulance drives her away and Catherine Ross notices that it drives in the opposite direction of the hospital which is suspicious and weird. Mm-hmm. And she tells her husband that that ambulance took her like in the opposite direction of the hospital. And he says, without looking, no, it didn't. And then she says, no, look. And he looks and he's like, oh, I guess you're right. His immediate thought mm-hmm. was to dismiss anything that she said. Aww. And it's that level Aww. of insidiousness, this subtle Aww. insidiousness that permeates throughout the entire film. And it, the movie... It is all about this. It's not subtle, but it is so casually presented that it's really quite ingenious and that you realize that this Mm. is a horror story before anything overtly horrifying or supernatural or sci-fi or anything even happens. Mm. And you also realize when you see this movie that Jordan Peele likes this movie. Well, uh, when you think about uh, the way women are treated as sort of domestic slaves, uh, it's not a very long, uh, long jump to racially code that story. Yeah, uh, which is what Jordan Peele did. Yeah, the Get in, Out in the movie is Get very, Out. It's, it's Get it's Out is clearly is a descendant, more, more or less. Yeah, it's almost a remake of the Stepford Wives in a lot of ways. It's in some respects, yes. I think there he does make of, it his own. But the way that it's reviews, structured, when it came out, a lot of reviews compared it to the Stepford. Oh, and Wives. he brought it up himself. Actually, I interviewed mm. Jordan Peele about this, and he talked mm. about socially conscious horror movies. And this is mm. one of the movies that he specifically referenced because it's not just scary Mm. it's scary because it is only one step removed from reality and that's Mm. true for get out and the way that get out handles racial tensions Mm. is that all of the things that make get out scary are in there 
before you realize that this is actually going to go in some broader, outlandish, implausible direction later on, mm. but that implausible direction is only a literalization of actual anxieties mm. that really do exist and are completely valid. Okay. And Stepford Wives does the exact same thing, and it handles it in an equally insidious manner. That does not diminish Get Out at all. No. I think Get Out yeah. is a damn near perfect movie, but... Hmm. It's interesting to see this as a double feature and to look at just how influenced he was by an earlier film that tackled a similar subject mm. and how much he made it his own. Um, Catherine Ross is excellent in this movie. Uh, everyone is excellent in mm. this movie. Um, the thing that I was actually really struck by, uh, in addition to the sharp writing, was actually the cinematography in a way that hmm. might not be obvious because it's not a very flashy film uh, from a cinematographic perspective. Uh, it's... Uh, Director of photography is Owen Roisman, who is considered one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived. Mm. Uh, Owen Roisman did films like The French Connection and The Exorcist and Network and the 1991 version of The Addams Family. Uh, a series of truly excellent looking motion pictures, mm. but not always in a way that really calls attention to themselves. And what's really kind of fascinating about Rose, uh, not Rose's Baby, they're similar films. What's fascinating about The Stepford Wives is how much of the movie, until like the last third, is overlit. Like, there's a lot of brightness. There's a lot of it, bright it, lights that actually kind of just like balloon. like a Dr. And, Dr. Pepper commercial. Yeah, it's it, really... It's really... It, the whole thing is that it never tips its hand and says, this is a horror movie for a really long time. Nothing about it visually codes that. In fact, mm. it's actually really inviting and really domestic. And But it's actually so inviting that and it's so bright that it actually becomes implausibly bright. And a lot of the lights just become these just like absolute uh, uh, orbs of heavenly mm. whiteness. That, yeah, this isn't like traditional horror, like Grand Guignol, mm. grim lighting. But it's off, and you start to question it. <laughs> and then towards the end of the movie, when Catherine Ross uh, actually like goes to the the men's organization, mm. and all the lights are off, and it goes completely in the opposite direction, and just becomes completely inky dark. Um, it is such a striking contrast, but it is just the mirror image. It's just the this is what it's like on the other side. This is just the shadow mm. that we weren't seeing because everything was too bright before to really take a look at what was going on in the darkness. And boy, is that good. It doesn't call it attention to itself, but it's really smartly handled. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I just loved that. I thought that was really cool. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Um, yeah. I, this, yeah, I've seen this film multiple times. I do really like it. Uh, if I have any complaints at all, I think that it's paced really slowly. Uh, yeah. I, I think that it could be, I don't know, just shave down here and there. Not, not that there's like extraneous scenes, but I feel like things play out a little bit too casually to the point where you kind of have to... I, I wonder, yourself awake a little bit. I wonder how much of that, though, is mm. the fact that the Stepford Wives has become so sort of ubiquitously known, even though it was supposed to be a twist. Mm. How much of the movie is just we know what's coming and we're mm. a little impatient to get there because we're ahead of the film? Because oh. I'm watching this and I'm like, what must it have been like mm. to have read this book without knowing what happened or to see this movie without having read the book yeah. when it first weekend it came out or something? And just have, like, like get out. Just have your mind fucking blown. Mm. 
I can only imagine just how because like I look at like a lot of the things that pay off later, like the little favors that people in town ask Catherine Ross to do yeah. that seem like weird character quirks, but then you realize, no, that's what that's what they're that's yeah, what they're, they're, doing. They're, they're, they're doing wicked, that thing. Yeah. They're doing that thing. But like if you didn't know that was happening and you just thought this was some kind of drama about how misogyny has a cult like fervor and it's infectious and it creates a system in which people are oppressed and it's incredibly difficult to break out of and not allow yourself to be uh, uh, sort of worn down by it. Mm. Only to see, find later that it actually goes in this incredible wild direction. That must have been incredible. But yeah, watching it now, it's like, mm. I, I do get it, Stepford Wives. <laughs> but the movie is designed yeah. to take you there slowly, I think. Yeah, um... It's designed to take you there slowly. It's not that I'm ahead of the movie. I mean, mm. I was I was ahead of the movie the first time I watched. I just think, uh, just think it could be p- pick up the pace a little bit. That's, That's fair. All. Yeah, it, it's it could be you know, 105 minutes rather than 101 hour and 55 minutes. Maybe. Uh, but I yeah, I think it's really really good. I do like that it stresses, and this is probably something from the novel that a lot of this anti-feminist. Uh, anti-woman rhetoric and a lot of these images of women as uh, domestic servants all is all compounded by Madison Avenue. And one of mm-hmm. the things that happens when uh, the the women begin to behave in a suspicious manner is they begin speaking like TV commercials. Yeah, and about how how convenient things are, exactly like a Frigidaire ad. Like uh, if I if I if I were in a commercial, mm-hmm. I would happily be in a commercial for this product. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even ask to get paid about it. Yeah, it, and I feel like that's a bigger element of their brainwashing than perhaps their uh, servitude to the men. Mm. Uh, servitude, the, the comment here is that uh, women's uh, place of servitude as depicted in popular, is something that's come from popular media. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's part of society as well. I right. mean, this but it's, it's, it's reaffirmed the, by the sexism, it. It's reaffirmed yeah, by it's, soap operas, by and Ozzy and Harriet. It's yeah. something that's constantly sold back into society by something as innocuous as a serial commercial. Yeah. And how uh, convenient it's supposed to be for a housewife to have these products. And so when when these women are brainwashed, they don't talk about how great their men were or how... Uh, how wonderful it is to stay home all the time, although that's part of their conversation. All of their conversation is inflected with what products they're using and how convenient mm. they are around the house. Uh, so that that was what I picked up from it uh, this on this mm. most recent watch. Well, the other thing I picked up from it mm. is, and, and I'm going to go into real spoiler territory here, so mm. if you wanted to keep this, we try to be a little vague, but I need to talk about something that's very specifically keyed into the ending of yeah. the film. Um, so you've been warned. That's your opportunity to pause it or wait for later. Um, towards the end, and you realize that they are mm. not just brainwashing people, but replacing them mm. and killing them. Yes. And you realize you you could have just made robots and just had the robots. You didn't have to <laughs> replace birth. and kill your wives. Mm. And you realize is that, you know, A, they're specifically choosing to commit murder here. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to, but they chose to. And the reason, the only reasons for why they would choose to kill their spouses and replace their spouses. Mm. 
considering they don't see them as human beings. I mean, we see bits of like men like struggling with the morality of this. And maybe you don't fully realize that's what the scene is about until later, but you realize like, Oh, that's why your husband had tears in his eyes after his first men's meeting, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not enough of a problem that he doesn't want to do it. Yeah. So that's just fucking horrifying and terrible. But he realizes that, they're trying to preserve the image of a wholesome family that they actually don't give a shit about. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to be perceived as men who had divorces. I divorced my wife and I got a new wife who is a robot, but you won't know that. Mm. Like that would have been <laughs> fine. But like, no, I don't want to like pay alimony. I don't yeah, want to be yeah. seen as someone who came from the, the, a failed marriage. It's all about them and their perception of themselves. And they are willing to kill they're willing to kill it's so it, fucked up well and and uh, again this image of domesticity that we're getting from popular media that has been persisting in american culture since the you know post-war boom uh is something that men are also trapped inside of yeah it's just the men are expected to be sort of the the dominant slash lazy ones of this mm. uh, they're, they're expected so, to benefit from it yeah it's yeah. supposed to be like it, oh it helps the men and that's, then that's now the, that, the ultimate scenario for yeah. them whether or not they like it that's the ultimate scenario and as them. feminism started to take mm. hold and become more of a dominant cultural mm. force from the 1960s and then by the time we're in the mid-1970s it's becoming it's kind oh, of a, it's a uh, kind of a joke in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's a lot of jokes about like the women's libbers. I mean, and, even yeah, yeah. even like Catherine Ross talks about. Yeah, I toyed around with women's lib in college, and I'm just yeah. like, okay, so we're not quite there yet, yeah, but it's becoming yeah. a thing, and you're starting to realize that now that you're in the suburban cult-like mentality, just the absolute greater significance of that, because maybe growing up in the city, you were you were a little shielded from that. But now that you're immersed within it, you really see the value of it and you understand the importance of having grassroots feminism and you see her try. Yeah. Um, but the men see that as a threat. And in order to keep women down, mm -hmm. they will go to any length. Yeah. And once they have a society of people saying it's okay to do this horrifically immoral thing because you're a man and you're entitled, mm -hmm. and they go, oh, okay. And you're just like, I just want to strangle the fucking film, yeah. like reach into the film and just strangle all the husbands. It's horrifying. Mm. There were several sequels to this. Yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear you talk about those because I didn't see any of them. There were uh, a bunch of made-for-TV movies. Yeah, there was, uh, five years later, there was Revenge of the Stepford Wives. <laughs> okay, where, where what happened the, in that one? Uh, well, it turns out that uh, the, the robot wives are being kept in place by, like, pills like the, okay. uh, an alarm sounds throughout Stepford, Connecticut and they all take their pills and it's all like it's about uh, it, like it, it, the antidepressant uh, yeah. blight yeah so, mother's like, little helper yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not that antidepressants are a blight some people need them and take them no, if no. you do but, but uh, there was, they were seen as a sort of cure-all for like oh are you experiencing domestic mm -hmm. woes that's not mm -hmm. actual anxiety that's not actual unhappiness that's mm -hmm. just something we can cure with the pill and yeah, we can keep so, you in your place and that was a horrifying way of looking at this. Yeah, so, so yeah, a lot of a lot of women were quote quote kept in place by you know, these these antipsychotic drugs. But it turns out the robots are taking those to keep them nonviolent, <laughs> because the the robots are going to rise up if they don't take the pills. And at the end of the movie, they eat a bunch of pills and they go nuts and they kill people. Well, that sounds satisfying. Is it fun? No, these, ah! these movies suck. Oh no. Then <laughs> there's the Stepford Children. 
where mm. instead of doing it to their wives, they're doing it to their kids because their kids are out of control, man. And they're listening to that 1987 rock and roll and their uh, free spirits talking got all about of that art. Dis- they got all of that disturbing behavior. Yeah, disturbing behaviors are also a remake of the Stepford Wives. Yeah, uh, it's not very good. <laughs> It's quite bad, actually. Sorry, William Sadler's in it. He's okay. Yeah, that part's fine. I'm deep because I read Vonnegut. Yeah, I've read. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, disturbing behavior. But then, then they uh, had the Stepford husbands. Then there was the Stepford husbands, which yeah. um, I don't remember anything about the Stepford husbands. Really, and, uh, nothing, nothing of interest in the Stepford no, husbands. You'd I, I, think that would be kind of, of pointed. Oh, that's too bad. No, I, I don't think it's a the tables are turned sort of thing where the the men are now being turned into robot slaves by their wives. I think it's another story of just. <sighs> It's, 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 it's about just sort of the I think it's about how the if I recall anything it's about how the men came to do what they do um, and then there was a remake in the early 2000s which is a big piece of shit I, I haven't seen the remake but I looked it up and I saw what they did to the ending mm-hmm. and I I nearly threw my laptop at a wall Yeah. well they, they turned it into a, a slapstick farce Yeah. and it was uh, about kind of this post Fight club and like masculine anxiety about how men were feeling really emasculated by their wives who are now uh, far more successful than they were in the workplace, yeah. and women were now uh, more commonly CEOs and lawyers and doctors. Yeah. And it's like Matthew Broderick uh, is married you, to Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I think John Lovitz is married to Bette Midler. Yeah, one of those. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, they just, and she has a nervous breakdown when uh, the Nicole Kidman character when she gives this big presentation at her company and it goes very badly for her. So they decide to chill out by moving to Stepford, Connecticut. It turns out they have this robot network in place and they introduce that really early on. Cause oh. I think we know what the, the twist is already at this point. Yeah. Uh, they introduce uh, Matthew Broadwick to one of the robot wives. She dispenses cash out of her mouth. That's so stupid. It's so stupid. But then at the end of the movie, they break a machine and it kind of turns off all the robots, but it turns them back into wives. So I'm not sure if they're flesh and blood. I think there's supposed to be cyborgs in that one. Yeah. Also, it turns out Matthew Broderick was actually like undercover the whole time to try to like. Yeah. Try to to, bust this. Yeah. So like, so the idea is that not all men are are evil. And I'm Mm. like, that's exactly the opposite point of the Stepford wives. Yeah. Is that they're either all evil or they're all willing to benefit from a society that perpetuates Mm. evil. And, And I think that was the point. Well, and the thing about the Stepford Wives is it, it could only have been made in like the late 60s or mid 70s because uh, the lingering I- image of the perfect 1950s housewife was still in practice at that time. Yeah, by the time was, we get it hadn't been entirely yeah, late. By the time we get to the yeah. 19, the, the early or the mid 2000s, uh, it's... Passé, it, at it's, best. It's already been so satirized yeah. that if somebody were to actually try to do that, it would like feel like a deliberate aesthetic choice to live that way. Yeah. Uh, And so they had to really bend over backwards to make this seem like a farce because that's the only way it would play. And it's not a good farce. It's actually quite a bad farce. And it's not very funny, despite the presence of talented actors. Yeah. I love John Lovitz. I think he's funny in everything. And Bette Midler can, she's a very, very intriguing performer. (laughs) She's Bette friggin' Midler. Oh no, Bette Midler! I heard Don't we- litter on the highway in front of her; she'll blow up your car. <laughs> that's a Simpsons reference. Yeah, that's a Simpsons reference. Great. Bette Midler rocks. Everyone likes Bette. I love Bette Midler. Um, so she's uh, been in a lot of bad movies, but I love Bette Midler. Oh, sure. like, who hasn't? Like, you yeah. gotta have a long. I was having like a conversation with someone. Like, mm. name a prominent actor who hasn't played a villain in a movie. Mm. You kind of can't. Like, any actor who's been around long enough and been in a significant number of films, you yeah. like to think that, like, oh yeah, Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's never played a bad guy. The Lady Killers. Played. He's played a bad guy. He's well, also the circle, and he's played yeah, a villain. My point, a lot. Yeah. point is that you think like, oh, like you know, all these people have never played bad guys. He, yeah, yeah, they have. 
Uh, there's very, 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 very few actors out there who've never played yeah. a bad guy, and there's very, very few actors out there who never accidentally found themselves in a stinker. You yeah. don't know how the movie's going to turn out. It could get edited badly. Shit happens. Yeah. You know, you, you just do the best you can. You try to pick the right material, and sometimes it stinks. And a lot of people who were involved in that Stepford Wives remake, where they completely whiffed the ending, and they said it was all a woman's idea, which is fucked up, um, they like literally said, that's not what we wanted to do. There were a lot of reshoots on that. Yeah, we were it, committed it, to it, it by feels, contract. It feels like a studio like, monster. Like, I think Nicole Kidman and Matthew Broderick and Frank Oz, and they were all yeah. just like, we fucked up. Like, yeah, we should, that, yeah. that was a bad movie. I regret being a part of it. They, we ruined that shit. And uh, kudos when you can just flat out say, I didn't do a good I, thing. We, we, met, we messed up. Yeah, we what, tried. What, what we fucked we, up. What can it, we say? We yeah, messed that yeah. one up. Yeah, we're not going to go to bat for this one. I'm not going to be defensive about it. Mm. Everything you're saying is fair. Um... But the original Stepford Wives is fucking great. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say you're right. It's maybe a little slow. I think it, it it certainly helps that, like, or hinders. It's certainly hindered by the fact that it's so well known now that mm. you're a little ahead of the movie. Yeah. But it's so well crafted and so sinister that I I don't think it really hurts the movie too much. I think it's still excellent. And I'm glad I finally saw it from start to finish. It's really quite excellent. Uh, next week on Critically Acclaimed, we actually have a pretty big weekend for movies. <laughs> it's the last weekend in August and we're getting a bunch of big movies including uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music which is going to be released in theaters and on VOD simultaneously uh, we're getting a new version of David Copperfield starring Dov Patel awesome right. <laughs> like I want to see that that sounds awesome well, a lot of people call it Dickens' best book that's Bleak House but uh, you know <laughs> I've never read it I've seen I've seen one movie adaptation of it I'm curious to see this new one alright uh, there's a new horror film on Shudder called The Shed uh, mm. which I'm excited about and The New Mutants is coming out which we might not be able to see why? Oh. because we're not trying to encourage people to see it in theaters mm. and to the best of my knowledge there will be no critics like screenings or online screeners or anything like that and I'm not going to go to a movie theater and risk my health and the health of the people yeah. that I know and love just to see New Mutants. It can wait. If, if they can get it to us safely, sure. Yeah. And if not, fair mm. enough. But I, I'm not, I'm not going to do it and I don't want to set a bad example by doing something that in my estimation based on what I know mm. is not safe and irresponsible or at least potentially not safe and irresponsible and that potential is bad enough. Uh, but I do want to see it. I am. Mm. I do finally want to see this fucking thing. <laughs> I like the whole cast. Like mm. the, I read those comics growing up. I'm not disinterested. William, I like the idea of doing a superhero horror movie. It's, but it, like, it, it's not a movie. It's not real. <laughs> this, they're, they're, it's not going to come out. It's, <laughs> these movies aren't real. They're just teasing you. Okay. Like there's no such thing as Wonder Woman 1984. They're just pretending. <laughs> We shot just enough for a trailer. That's it. <laughs> that, um, that's it. Yeah. These, yeah. these are all fake movies. Every single one of them. Anyway. anyway, so we got a bunch of movies uh, next week. And then on the critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, where you can vote for a new movie or a new old movie mm. uh, every week at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, we will be reviewing by request. It was a very, very close one. Midnight Meat Train. Yeah. We decided to do a, a films. There's a whole section on 2B TV called not on Netflix, which is actually quite a bit of the stuff they have on Tubi. <laughs> but we decided to narrow it down from there, and they actually had a lot of interesting films, and it was like by two by two votes. Like, it was so close. Yeah, yeah. It was like between that and like King of New York from Abel Ferrara, and then Young Adult was right up there as well. Yeah, um, m and, movies which I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, 
I have seen The Midnight Meat Train. Uh, it's based on a short story by Clive Barker mm-hmm. from one of the books of Blood. One of the few Clive Barker mm-hmm. movies I haven't seen. Um, uh, it stars Bradley Cooper as a photojournalist who is on the hunt for a serial killer on a subway. Who, who kills people on the subway. And uh, that he, they get on the midnight meat train and the serial killer kills you on the midnight meat train. And the horror community has developed a bit of a cult following, mm. so I'm curious to watch it. Maybe uh, Whitney will gain a different appreciation for it on a mm. rewatch. Maybe he won't. I don't know. But we'll watch <laughs> it next week and we will find out in addition to all those other movies we talked about. So thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, Please do. We have a ton of content right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we also have at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, a ton of exclusive content. We're about to start uh, a new Patreon exclusive podcast in which we will cover a cult classic television show uh, episodically. Uh, and uh, we started off with like eight different ep- uh, eight different shows and then we had a poll and then we had another poll to narrow it down. And as of recording right now, we're on our last poll. It's either going to be the 1960s Batman TV show mm-hmm. or Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. Um, it's too early to call it, but it's looking like it's going to go one way, but I don't want to jinx it by calling it. Um, but uh, in any case, we'll be reviewing one of those shows episodically in the near future uh, for our $1 patrons. However, at higher levels, you get episode, you get exclusive podcasts about uh, films that should be on Disney Plus but are not mysteriously. Uh, We have a podcast about every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, We have a podcast dedicated to every single episode of Star Trek in production order. We have commentary tracks, Google Hangouts. We have a lot of exclusive stuff at our Patreon uh, site. And we are incredibly grateful to every single one of our patrons without whom we couldn't do this right now uh, or at all. Thank you so much. So thank Thank you you so much. much. It means your support means everything to us. And we're very grateful to you. Uh, If you want to email us, our email is letters at critically acclaimed.net. And we may read your letter on an upcoming episode of our podcast. We've got mail right here Mm -hmm. at the critically acclaimed network. We're also on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And I think that's about it. So, can, thank- can I have my radio drama? Oh yeah, sorry. All right. I, um, by all means, plug I, away. I wrote a new radio drama. Yeah. This is the third that's been made available to our uh, our Patreon subscribers. If you subscribe at the twenty dollar level, you get it. Uh, if you want to buy a copy, it's ten bucks. Just contact me via Twitter or Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's called Determined. It's about a group of friends who are going through a dead companion's apartment, and she's left behind a lot of tchotchkes. They find a video cassette where she communicates to them from the past. Turns out she could pre- perfectly predict the future and has conversations with them and sends them on a task to avenge her death. Uh, it stars a cast of very talented actors. Uh, I, I wrote it and mixed it myself. I wrote it in my 20s. <laughs> Sounds like I wrote it in my 20s, but I think it came together pretty well, uh, and I think you might enjoy it. So please uh, please yeah. contact me uh, to buy a copy of Determined. Yeah, patrons uh, that are $20 level get it for no additional fee, and if you're not a patron, uh, yeah, contact Whitney directly on social media, and you can set something up at PayPal or Venmo, and if you want his other shows as well, you might be able to work out a package deal. Yeah. So, uh, okay, again, thank you everybody for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?